0: Hey guys, uh, we're back. This is going to be a special show tonight. We promised you part two of standoff tonight is going to be a little different tonight. We're not talking to one of the salters of it, but we're actually talking to the negotiator. We're going to go over his life, his career as a negotiator and what not only went through his mind that night, what he had to say, but the effects of this event after him, because he believes on a fundamental level that this event has changed his life in different ways. So, we're going to get right into it. Like we said, Standoff is a book by Jamie Thompson. It tells about the night, July 7, 2016, where five Dallas officers were killed. And it's a uh, fantastic book. So, we want to bring Larry on to give a different perspective of that show. So, into the show in three, two, one and we're live. Are
1: you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you were here?
0: How about no, you crazy Dutch bastard?
2: What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points,
0: and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute.
1: I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious,
0: I am serious. I don't call me stupid. Sure. What's up everybody? It's a special show tonight. It's a Wednesday, not a Friday, but it's still DTD, the dads that drink. And we promised you a second episode of this show, Standoff that night in Dallas. Tonight, we have the negotiator, Larry Gordon, and he has a almost fabled career on the Dallas Police Department. He started his career with the Dallas Police Department in 1995. In June of 1997, Larry was selected to be part of the Dallas Police Department's Specialized Crime Unit. After several productive years with the Specialized Crime Unit, Larry transferred to narcotics. His duties included, but were not limited to, executing dynamic entry search warrants, conducting undercover drug buys, and training new detectives that joined the unit. In 2004, Larry transferred to the Dallas Police Department's coveted SWAT team. Larry's duties on the SWAT team consisted of crisis, hostage negotiation, executing high-risk search warrants, providing motorcades for current and former presidents of the United States, and distinguished dignitaries afforded a motorcade. He also acts as a counter-assault team for those dignitaries and current and former presidents. Larry served as one of the lead negotiators for the SWAT team for several years. He successfully negotiated peaceful resolution to arm barricaded suspects. Larry also negotiated operations where a sniper tactical resolution had to be used to bring the volatile situation to an end. On July 7, 2016, Larry faced his most challenging negotiation, as he spent hours negotiating with an individual who killed five police officers. For this, Larry received the Medal of Valor for his actions that night. After 13 years in SWAT, Larry transferred to the Criminal Intelligence Unit, where he was assigned for two years until his promotion as sergeant. Now, Larry's currently assigned as the training sergeant in narcotics and vice. He's also responsible for training SWAT officers and certifying them in tear gas, less lethal munitions, and distraction devices. He's also an active shooter, advanced law enforcement rapid response training instructor, a firearms instructor, and a munitions instructor. Please help me in welcoming Larry Gordon. Hello, Ooh. Larry.
2: Hey, how you doing?
1: That's impressive.
0: It's very, very impressive. That's
1: freaking badass, man. That's kudos. That's freaking badass.
0: So, Larry, the reason we're here tonight, this situation, after all these years and all this that you've done on the police department and everything that you've seen, this situation changed you fundamentally. So, how we want to go tonight on this interview is we want to start at the beginning of your career. Move through it, things that you thought as you worked in SWAT as you started doing crisis negotiation, all that kind of stuff. And as we get to that night, we want to switch modes and go into the physical and psychological aspect of it. So okay. let's start off with your career. Um, what made you decide that you wanted to be a police officer?
2: Um, quite honestly, I didn't really decide that I wanted to be a police officer. I mean, really, it shows me. Um, okay. I, I was. I wanted to. I, I dodged it for a while, and for and it was it's, it was weird. But for probably, ever since I was about ten years old, when I would watch TV and see police officers die in the line of duty, it really affected me. I, I have no idea why. I and I was young. I didn't know why. And I remember, um, I was about ten or eleven, maybe. And I'm from Terrell just east of here. And it was a terrible police officer got killed in our apartment complex. And I remember that. I remember where he got killed, who shot him, where he was, where the suspect was located. I remember I, I was 10 years old and I remember everything about it. Mm. So, um, And that had a real profound effect on me growing up because I couldn't walk past the the area where he got killed. I, I just, I, whenever I would go that way, I would have to walk all the way around because I couldn't walk past that area. And, you know, we, and the the apartments I grew up in was pretty much drug infested. So I would, I would sit, and, you know, and we knew, we knew the jump out boys. They weren't called the jump out boys at the time, but <laughs> we knew who they were when they came around the corner, we knew the vans and all the kids would run and I would just watch. I would, I mean, it was, I probably should have ran to get out of the way in case shots fired, but, I remember I would just watch them and I, and I would just wonder where they were going. And and even if they passed me, I would kind of follow them a little bit. And it was always just a sight to see, to see them jump out of the van in all black, maybe have a hood on, uh, you know, or the vests and helmets and, you know, a little whatever they carried at the time. Um, jump out of the MP5s, whatever they had, uh, the machine guns and jump out of the van. And I would just watch them. And I just thought, man, I, I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to do that one day. So when I got out of college, I was like, I, I of course I majored in criminal justice, of course, but I was, I was, um, I was always afraid to be a police officer because I didn't want to shoot anybody, I didn't want to get shot. Um, but and and for years, and this is, this is going to sound weird, but for years I had a reoccurring dream. And the reoccurring dream was I was chasing, I, I would be chasing this guy. I don't know what I was chasing it for. I was a police officer. I would chase this guy and he would turn around and shoot me. And I would wake up. I had that reoccurring dream for years until I joined the police department. It went really? Away. Yeah. It went away. I never had it again.
1: So it was almost like uh, maybe a, a direct calling in a way through dreams or God or whatever you you don't want to believe him. That's pretty interesting. Um, That's a very neat story.
0: Yeah. And you know, the thing about it is where you grew up and it describes it a little bit in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people that grew up around you weren't really fans of the police. Um, Right. And, and even family members of yours weren't Mm -hmm. giant fans of the police. So what is it that you think was different about you or your thinking? Because I mean, technically, you're all being brought up by the same people, the same mm-hmm. community, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, what was it about them or about policing that seemed different to you than the normal guy on the street or the the average person?
2: Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think more or so, I was a an a leader. I was a leader. I didn't want to okay. follow anybody. Okay. Um, but I'm I'm the youngest of four kids, and my two older brothers, my two role models uh, have multiple stints in, in prison, multiple, at least four a apiece. Uh, get out, go back, get out, go back. Um, and I think I, I can only really guess, I can just guess that uh, my brother, my, my middle brother next to me, he's he's two years older than me. I remember when he was 13 years old, this stands out in my mind, he was 13 years old and he committed a, a burglary at the time. It was a burglary of, a, of, a, of the apartment complex where we live. He burglarized the office. And it was stupid to burglarize the office because they don't keep any cash. They keep money orders, they ain't like you can cash them. But but he he burglarized the office. So he's 13, I'm 11, 10 or 11, somewhere around there. Um, and You know, of course, some witnesses said, hey, I know who did it. It was Daryl, Daryl Gordon. He lives right over there. And Mm -hmm. Terrell PD comes to our house. My brother's 13. uh, Put him in custody. Took him to jail. And I remember this distinctly. I remember my mother coming back from visiting him at this juvenile detention center, wherever it was. or somewhere near Kauffman or somewhere. Uh, I'm not sure where it was because I didn't go. But I remember when she came back. My mother was in tears. I mean, she was inconsolable because she was saying that that he was he he was housed in like a an animal um, outside, like an animal pen is what she called it. And and I'm I'm thinking in my 10 year old brain what it looks like. She said he's they're treating him like an animal. He's in this uh, almost like a cage. That you would, you know, way she described it, like if you would, if you would walk past a cage of some animals and they just had them outside, almost like a kennel or something, the way she described it, and and it, and it had a profound effect on me. And I was like, nah, ain't doing that. I'm not doing that. Uh, most of my friends sold crack, sold drugs, and I was like, i would be with them, which was stupid in 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 itself. But I'll be like, nah, nah, bro, I ain't gonna do that. You you can that's you can have that. I'm not gonna do that. So. I guess that that was one of the, you know, catalysts that stopped me from doing that type of stuff.
1: But, but you know, what I would like to say is the peer pressure, especially, I think, and maybe parts of where I grew up, is strong in, in um, you know, your hardness and your your street cred and all that stuff. That, that goes a long way. So for you to say, I ain't doing that, but they still accept you, that says a lot about your character. So I think that kind of tells, it's kind of the prequel to, to your story mm-hmm. in a way in, in having your relationships with those people um, before and during and while you're still doing what you're doing. And we'll probably get into that here a little bit later, but mm-hmm. um, I think that's an important part of, of of where you're at and, and kind of how you've dealt with um, maybe your own uh, family community and community in yeah. um, the black community, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think that's a def- definite prequel to that.
2: And it's and and really, honestly, that started me negotiating because <laughs> I was negotiating a long time. Right. Talking to, uh, you know, guys with guns, um, you know, it's in the book. But a friend of mine who was selling weed for this big time dope dealer was stealing this money, I guess, I guess not paying him or whatever. And we're sitting there and this the dope dealer walks up, pulls out a huge gun. It was a revolver looks like maybe 357, 44 Magnum. I mean, it was a huge revol- silver revolver. And he just, and I remember, t- I, I, I remember thinking I can't run because if I run, he's going to shoot me. And it wasn't, hmm. you know, I I w I, I wasn't involved in a drug trade, but you know, I was smart enough to know that I can't run. I got to sit here. I got to sit here with my friend while he gets shot. But, uh, the negotiating part of it, I knew that this, I didn't know this at the time, but but what I did was, if I can just deescalate this situation and and basically what I did my whole career, if I can get the emotionality down, the rationality will go up. If I can get the emotionality down of this guy, I, I don't know how I knew that, but if I can just get it down and talk to him and that emotionality, that rationality will go up. So I got it down, and I asked him questions like, how much does he owe you? He said the amount. I can't remember the amount. And I said, you know what, man? You know, I ain't got nothing to do with it. But I, you know, I can help him pay it back. I can work to help him pay it back. And I told him, I said, hey, if you kill him, you won't get your money. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just coming up just coming up with stuff off the top of my head, and it worked. He put the gun back in his waistband and allowed him to pay him. So, you know, growing up in the hood, you know, I, I negotiated for a while for a long time.
0: Well, and I think that has a direct correlation. When you say if you take the emotionality out of it and put the rationality, it will go up. Yeah, I think you would agree that most most crime and especially violent crime is done off emotion. Yes, and and so if you can walk that away from the situation, I, they always say cooler heads will prevail. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but knowing that as a kid, that that seems odd because I remember me as a kid and. You know, mm, yeah. you're going 90 miles an hour with your hair on fire and not mm-hmm. thinking about any of that stuff. So it it almost seems like from the beginning, this is kind of the path you took. Now, being that you said the youngest of four, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's also a negotiators uh, dream to yeah. be that because you're always trying to keep the peace among mm-hmm. family. Yeah. Um, While well, you're that
1: target, actually. <laughs>
0: yeah. You know, yeah. You're, yeah. you're
1: the beaten child. You're the mm-hmm. target. You're the one yeah. that's going to get all the brunt. Mm-hmm. And depending on who came before you, you don't know what you're going to get. So to be able to do both of those things is pretty, uh, pr- pretty telling. No yeah.
0: And, and, you know, and, and I think with going back to what Jeff said about that, you know, you told these guys, I'm not going to do that stuff, but you still had kind of that credibility. Do you think that comes from your brothers that they knew who your family was?
2: Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and, it's, it's been, I've had several situations where, um, you know, my brothers were, um, you know, in the streets, lack of a better term, they were in the streets and the guys knew them. And I had several situations where um, I was accosted by people or certain people and I would go and tell my brothers, hey, this guy did something to me and they were like, okay, we'll handle it. And, you know, I remember I was maybe in the sixth grade one time. I feel bad about this, but I was in the sixth grade one time and this, this huge, this huge white dude, we were in the bathroom together and he, you know, we were at the urinals together and uh, he, he was, I don't know what I did to him. I don't, I can't even remember what I did to him. Maybe I accidentally peed on his foot or something. I don't know what I did, but he was, up, yeah, he was upset at me. He was upset at me. And my brother, like I said, was two years older than I was. So I was in the sixth grade. My oldest brother was in the eight, I mean, my middle brother, I'm sorry, my middle brother was in the eighth grade. So I was in middle school. So just ironically, just, I don't know why this happened, but this guy was threatening to beat me up. I mean, he was, he looked like a grown man in the, and you know, he hadn't been eighth grade or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving out of the bathroom and my brother and his goons are coming in the bathroom. Mm. And and he just knew he said what's wrong I said you know I looked at the guy the big white dude I said you know I hate to do it to him but I said he you know threatened to beat me up but whatever I said to my brother my brother said go ahead and go back to class why my I, I guess my brother and his friends came in class to smoke you know smoke cigarettes and stuff so they weren't in class I just went came to class use restroom I uh, came to the bathroom to use the restroom but I can remember them beating that guy up and I could hear it and it was just the worst thing. I'm like, man, I shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't. Have, I shouldn't have told him about what that guy did. Because I mean, and the and the guy seen me like the next day. He was, he was. I'm he, sure he avoided, very nice. Yeah, he avoided me the next day. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, that happens often.
0: Let me ask you something, and this is kind of jumping ahead, but we're going to go back and forth. When you've negotiated, when you worked undercover, uh, because your brothers were in the drug game and stuff like that when you worked undercover or as a negotiator or a SWAT, whatever you want to be, you ever seen your brother in those faces?
2: Yeah. Um, I seem to
0: change the situation.
2: Oh, oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, that, that helped me, that that helped me because um, I mean, even in patrol um, dealing with these guys out here, chasing these guys and, you know, maybe, you know, sometimes you have to spank these guys. They, they're going to fight you. They're going to resist. You have to spank him. But it helped me that if I did have to fight the guy, got him into custody, you know, it's a done deal. You know, um, it's over. Um, but, yeah, without a doubt, um, I, and not only my 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 brothers, my family members, It's you, you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, black folks without their family members going to prison, bottom line. It may hurt people's feelings, but it's the truth. You know, my wife included a lot of her, you know, uncles and and close family members, uh, males, that is, went to prison. So um, a lot of the people that I, I hung with and still see to this day, you know, at family reunions or at cookouts or whatever case it would be, did hard time. These guys, these guys did hard time. And if I was at work, I probably, you know, I would probably see that guy and have a different reaction. But these the you know these guys are you know I've known since my whole life you know some killers i mean these guys went to jail for murder i mean just but you know them they're good people they're very loyal and i know that about these 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 hood dudes these hood dudes are very very loyal i mean they they'll die for you you know they're very loyal so you know um they know me and i know them and we keep it at you know like that
1: so, what is the dynamic like? You know, now I mean, the book. Now we're kind of going back and forth, like Dustin said, but the book kind of gets into uh, how you relate to to family and friends, and, and um how you um, can see the side of the the frustrations in in the uh, hypocrisies in in those arrests that maybe they're not warranted in shootings. And then you also can see the side of the police where they're justified shootings in, you can see the proportions of race and all that. How was that balance between being able to talk to your family and friends that are black versus being a police officer? And how do you balance that and stay true to yourself, but stay true to your profession and also your family and friends?
2: Really, um, I think the, the biggest thing is just to be honest, just to be honest, because it is what it is. It is what it is. If if an officer does something stupid, it is what it is. If a suspect, um, you know, bites an officer or shoots an officer or whatever, has his gun, dope or whatever, it is what it is. You have to be honest and you can't. Um, I just don't think that you can. You know. And, and like we're, we're we're seeing today, that you know, a lot of the groups out here today with these people they're coddling these people. You know, if this guy did something wrong, he did it wrong. There's no ifs ands or buts about it. He is wrong. And and I don't I don't think that you will. You know that yeah that guy did something wrong, but the police did this, and the police are wrong. No. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, and and I and honestly, I learned that early. This is this is what I learned early. My uh, one of my best friends got killed by the police when I was in high school, and he was and and he was a drug dealer. Like I said, most of my friends were drug dealers. He was a drug dealer, and and I got a scholarship, a football scholarship, and I remember him telling me, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna party the whole summer." Because I know you got to go to go to practice early, right? We had two days. I should have been working out instead of partying, but anyway, I was partying with him, and I, I go to practice. I was a quarterback in high school, and and I was recruited as a quarterback in college. And I went to college, and I and being a quarterback, you go to practice before everybody because mm-hmm. you have you have meetings, and you get out of practice after everybody because you have an offensive meeting. Mm-hmm. So I got out of practice late. And I went to my room and um, when I went to my room, my roommate who was a a running back, he was looking kind of weird. I'm like, you know, what's up, man? And he was like, hey, mate, your girlfriend is gonna call you at at 5.30. And my girlfriend, she's my wife now. And she doesn't even remember this. When I told her that she didn't even remember this. I don't know how she could not remember this. But anyway, she called me and told me my best friend that got killed. And um, I'm like, what happened? Police shot him. I'm like, what? Police shot him. Yeah, he tried to rob the police. Is what she told me. I'm like, try to rob the police. What do you mean? What What happened was it was an undercover deal. He was trying to rob some under, undercover okay, officers yeah. that he didn't know were police officers, and they shot him seven times, either four times in the chest, three in the back, or three in the chest and four in the back. And I distinctly remember saying to my roommate, man, they shot him in the back, and you know, I was upset at the police because they killed one of my, my you know, one of my mm-hmm. good friends." but knowing what i know now um they should have shot him more than once. i mean more than seven times because he shot two of them so um and i i have empathy for people like that and these people going around out here saying you know you the police and the police are this and that because I, at 18 19 years old i was that guy i was that guy because i had a, a, a friend of mine that was shot by the police but i have a different perspective now I have a different perspective. So,
1: so quickly, can I can I ask where you played college football at?
2: Uh, at Angelo State University. All right, I was I was a quarterback at Baylor, so we share that. You know, and I, I guess I will bring it up. I was recruited. What year did you go to Baylor? Uh, I played from ninety four to ninety seven. Okay, I'm older than you, so I was recruited. Uh, I was I, I was recruited by Baylor. And I was in class, high school, I was in high school, with my her- head coach come and gets me out of class. And he's standing with this black dude, I have no idea who he was, no idea. He was just, and he and and Coach Crumpton was just asking me just some weird cr- questions like, okay, uh, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I had this, I had that, you know? Okay, and he's just asking me some weird questions, right? So he said, okay, you can go back to class. And he told me later, that was a, Bay- a recruiter from Baylor. And it was recruiting. I'm like, oh man, okay. And so, what happened was, you know, when I was in high school, I never took the SAT or ACT. Really? Yeah, because it cost two hundred and twenty bucks or something. Okay. Like I didn't. We, my I knew my mother didn't have one hundred and twenty dollars. I just I didn't even ask. So, um, I didn't go to Baylor. So I had to go to a junior college first, right? I had to go to junior college, but Baylor came there. And they were at our and at my games. And I just I just think I should have went to Baylor. Long story short, should have went to Baylor. So
1: when did you where were you in college at?
2: I went to like, Trinity Valley and So what years? Uh eighty nine through 90, 90 Eighty nine. Okay. Like, so yeah. you
1: were an option run pass kind
2: of guy? yeah. Um I wasn't an option, but I was a um I was a, you know, an athletic quarterback that could yep. run. Because when I went to Angelo State, I got moved to receiver, and I made All-American at receiver. Really? Yeah.
1: Oh, that's a huge jump. Yeah. And you're, I, you're what do you use, like 6'2", 230 now? Yeah, 6'2",
2: 230. Well, yeah. I, then I was 6'2", about 205.
1: I know we're getting sidetracked here, but you you brought up football, and I was like, oh, that's my jam. So <laughs> i, I got to shout out, as a quarterback, I understand, like you go to – you have to get there early. You grind, yeah. stay late. Yeah. You watch film. You're, yeah. you're constantly under the microscope, and so I relate to that. But that's probably why you've made such a great um, negotiator and SWAT guy. You, you've you were a leader young. You were a leader yeah. in your football. You were a leader um, within a team. You were diverse enough to play foot, uh, quarterback, then receiver. And that probably got you mad respect because there's nothing more than an athlete that says, well, i guy's quarterback, but he plays receiver too. And he's a bomb receiver mm-hmm. that gives you straight credibility, but your actions are the, what gives you the credibility. And then if you have a voice behind it, like you do, um, it's no question why you've ended up where you're at. And, you know, I don't want to get too lost in that, but uh, that's, I think a very important role to be real honest with you. Um, those experiences are really important. No doubt. They harden you up.
2: Definitely. They definitely did.
0: So going back to when you learn about your friend uh, being shot, you said that you have empathy for these people these days, that that was you at 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a 2 part question. One Uh, What made you change from that thought process? Because you even said yourself, if I knew what I know now, they should have shot him more times. Mm -hmm. And number two, is that even possible today of how you changed? Is it possible to change those people or, or have we reached a critical mass to where it's not possible to come back from it? Good question.
2: Um, I think it's possible to change them because I honestly, um, this is going to sound cliche, but educating people. People not educated, man. They're not educated about what we do. And I say that because after 7-7, after the shooting, I was kind of voluntold to go to these Black Lives Matter panels, right? I had to go to these panels, right? And it was like me, I'm the only police officer sitting up here on this panel with, you know, seven, eight Black Lives Matter people, ministers or whatever in this black church, uh, up in North Dallas and these churches or whatever, you know, full of black folks. Right. So anyway, it was, you know, it was kind of a setup and I'm like, you know, these guys, people are not listening. So, but at the end of the at the end of the um, little I guess town hall meeting that we had, these people would come up to me and they would talk to me. And they were like, hey, thank you for trying to explain, you know, what officers do and yada, yada, yada. And this one female said to me, she said, you know, but police, they just, they just have to stop shooting so many black people. And, and it was, it was right after, uh, uh, um, Alton Sterling, which is the one who got shot in Baton Rouge, outside the store selling CDs, full of guns. Yeah. And it was right after that. And she said, um, you know, and, and just the, like the shooting in Baton Rouge, I just, I'm, Oh my God, I just can't believe it. And I said, did you watch the video? She said, yeah, it was just so brutal I couldn't watch it. And she had a little kid with her. And I said, okay. I said, is this your son? She said, yeah. I said, what's his name? She said, Michael. I said, how old is it? He says, she's 12. Hey, Michael, you know, shake his hand. I'm in full uniform. I'm in uniform. And hey, how you doing? I said, I said, hey, play a I told her, the mother, play a game with me. Let's, let's fast forward 10 years. Michael, this guy, your baby wants to be a Dallas police officer. And she's like, oh my God, oh my God. I said, hey, well, hold on, just stay with me here. I said, he wants to be a Dallas police officer. And he's 22 years old, he gets out of academy, you're proud of him, he graduated academy. He's gonna be a fine officer. I said, he 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 gets out of academy, he's with his field training officer, he's in a passenger seat, his field training officer's driving. And I told her, I said, um, he gets a call of a black male, 6'3", 300 pounds, red shirt, just pulled a gun on a complainant in front of a store. Michael, I said, your baby, your baby is en route to that call. He gets to that call. He sees what he believes is a suspect. He's a red shirt, fit the description a little bit. Your baby, Michael, gets out of the car. said, hey, man, do me a favor. Put your hands in the car for me. And that, that guy says, man, screw you. You just mess with me because I'm black and yada, yada, yada. Hey, hey, man, I got a call on you. Put your hands in the car and your baby i said ma'am your baby michael takes out his taser and tells that guy put your hands on the car do it now the guy resists i'm not going to put my hands on the car and your baby michael tries to tase the guy and i told her he one prong hit one prong miss and your baby michael has to go hands on he grabs a guy he and his fto field training officers fighting this guy they fall on the ground i said somebody walks out of the store with a camera and they're filming your baby Michael fighting this guy. And I said, your baby, Michael, is holding the guy's legs and this guy sticks his hand in his pocket. And I said, your baby, your baby feels a gun in his pocket. And your baby pulls out his gun. Michael pulls out his gun and says, do not take your hand out of that pocket. I'm going to freaking shoot you. He loses a grip on that hand. Your baby, Michael, shoots that guy and kills him. And he sees you the next day and he said, mom, I had to shoot that guy. I thought that guy was going to kill me. Now I asked that woman. I said, "Did your baby Michael make the right decision?" She said, "Oh my God, yes." I said, "That's what happened." And she said, really? "And she said, oh, oh, my God, oh, I know what you did to me. I know what you did to me. You told me the facts of the case." I said, "No." I said, "You knew the facts of the case." I said, "What I did, I just switched the emotionality of the case. I put you made the- it relatable to exactly her situation. Exactly. I did that to four people." four people on the those panels that I was on. I did it to the leaders, a guy named Robert, it's a leader of the Black Lives Matter movement of that that town hall meeting. He even said, yeah, if it happened like that, it's, it's it, yeah, I, I mean, I can't even argue. I can't even argue. I did that to the people at the mayor's office when I worked for the mayor who was complaining about the shootings. They said yes. So I think it's more of a, just an educational thing. And that's on us, that's on us. You know, and and you know the the old Jack uh, Jack Nicholson. I know. I mean, uh, Kelly was talking about this, or just uh, the few good men. When Jack Nicholson is on the stand and he's saying, you know, you can't handle the truth. That little soliloquy he had, and he's talking about that. And he say, and he's saying, I don't have to explain myself to people that rise and sleep under the very freedom that I provide. I just wish you said thank you. You know what I'm saying? But we can't have that attitude. We have to explain that to people. We have to explain what we're doing to people. We can't just say, you should just say thank you because you, you rise asleep on a very freedom that the police officers provide and you need us on the wall and all that. And I think that's the biggest issue. We just have to explain it to people and they want to know.
1: Well, now more than ever with, with social media, with the outlets in, in all these different, um, you know, people have these experts, different takes, I think the front lines to me are educating like what you're doing on, on the front lines. You're, you're going and you're, you're going to these town hall meetings. You're, you're engaging with individuals. You're, you're um, eloquently, but very passionately in uh, strategically talking to them to give them a perspective. That's not just the obvious white, cop black uh suspect or vice versa. And um I think that's what it's all about is you figured it out. That's that's your words versus your weapons. You've got both of them obviously being in SWAT. I think that's the important the role that you play and in, in that uh cops play and, and specialized people like yourself play is hey um education is key and uh community outreach is important. Mm-hmm. And anytime you can do that to support uh, what you're doing, I think that's vitally important. I think that's a, a crucial part of the the whole crusade, if you, if you will. Uh, there's no doubt. That's, that's an integral part to me. And I think um, you're doing a fantastic job of that.
0: Thank you. So th- there's a book out there called Never Split the Difference. Uh, and it's by Chris Voss. He was a negotiator. I think you know Chris. I don't um, know
2: him, but yeah, no, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know of is. him. Yeah.
0: Uh, never split the difference. And so he talks about negotiation in there and he talks about always, <clears throat> you talk about taking the emotionality out, raising the rationality. He talks in there in the book about, um, always asking the person, how do you expect me to get that done? Mm -hmm. when he's negotiating with the person, not emotionality, but saying, okay, you want this. Well, how do you expect me to get that done? If you're doing this and how do you expect me to get that done? How do those two things tie together? And and the reason that I'm asking this question and setting it up is because we're going to move into the headquarters shooting next about you talking and how long you talked and all that kind of stuff. So do those things tie together? Are they separate? Do they run together? How
2: does that work? Yeah, I think, uh, and I, I stole some stuff from Chris. I stole some stuff from Chris. Uh, it's kind of funny. But, yeah, um, How when, when you ask someone, how do you expect me to get that done? What you're doing, you're making this person have rational thought. If, if 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 they wanted me to walk on water, right, I want you to walk on water. How do you want me to get that done? What what do I need to do? And, and oftentimes those guys will say, yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. We can't do that. Or I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And then we, we, um, you know, in the world of negotiations, we call it a, um, a PPA, a positive police action. So if we do something for him and, and, and it's just basically, it's just basically social theory. Basically it's just and social theory is just have, Six points or seven points now, but I just use six because the seventh one is redundant. But it's just reciprocity. It's one of the the theories of social, one of the social theories, the first one is reciprocity. I do something for you, your people are compelled to do something. If, you know, just like your buddy, it's like if, you know, your buddy gets you a Christmas gift or whatever. Like, oh, hell, Kelly got me a Christmas gift. I got to get him something. You know, most normal people would say that. You don't, don't have
0: to worry about that. I won't ever do <laughs> that. So
2: Normal people would. Normal people would. If you got me a gift, I was like, I got to get him a gift. Yeah. It's just, it's just a theory of reciprocity. So um, and that and how, and that's where that that emotionality comes in at, because once you get that emotionality down, it's like the seesaw, the old school seesaw when you were little and you were on the seesaw. And it goes yeah. like that. And once you get that emotionality down, the rationale is going to go up. And that's what Chris is doing. Chris wants that person to think rationally. And I, and I stole from Chris. And every, t- I mean, every single time I said this on the negotiations, everybody laughed. But I stole from Chris. Chris said, well, you have a guy inside of a house and he's got a gun or whatever the case may be. And he's not, he's not, you know, threatening anybody. Anybody's in there with him. You ask that person, how much do you love yourself? How much do you love yourself? because you're in control okay. of the situation. You're in control because all you, for this situation to end, all you have to do is walk out that front door and put this put the gun down and walk out the front door. And when I would ask them that over the uh, loud hailer, I would hear laughter every single time. Really? Like, yeah. And, and when I asked them, how much do you love yourself? Because they never heard that. They would be like, after it was over, suspect in custody, oh, how much do you love yourself? <laughs> and, and they didn't understand what I was doing. They didn't understand it, but it, it was kind of funny. But yeah, it, I, I stole that from Chris.
1: Was that kind of bringing them forefront to back to reality? Like, I know what you're doing, but don't you love yourself? Yeah. Like,
2: yeah. So,
0: talking about the loud hailer and you asking them that, do you want to maybe go into your first negotiation on the loud hailer?
2: Um, yeah, I remember. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was so embarrassed, man. I was so embarrassed, and the reason why I was embarrassed is because, um, I was embarrassed because it was it was the ultimate SWAT guy, you know. Uh, if you know these guys, but uh, Kelly, Steve Claggett, and those guys, it was those guys, and I I wasn't their negotiator. I was on. Steve Claggett and all those guys, they were in the A unit. I was in the E unit.
0: Well, w- an easy way we can say this is the guys you're talking about. Those were on the TV show Dallas. Swap. Yeah. A lot TV of those show. guys were. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, and, um, and I remember negotiating with this guy. Well, I, I wasn't necessarily negotiating with him. I was talking to him. He was inside. Um, he might've committed suicide, but I, I can't even remember. But um, I was just, just talking to him. And, and my voice was cracking and and, it, and it's weird hearing your voice. It's just weird because yeah. everybody is going to hear you and everybody's going to hear the inflection in your voice and everybody's going to hear it. And it just wasn't embarrassing. It was very, very embarrassing the first couple of times I did it. But Steve Claggett came up to me and said, you can negotiate for me anytime. I don't know why he said that. He just walked by me and said it, you know, because he was a butthole. But and I like, I like the guy, but he was just oh, a, really, yeah, he was just an arrogant, uh, nice hair, you know, guy like he fixed his hair before he went on a barricaded subject. But <laughs> and, and he was just it, and after he said that, I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe I can do it. Directly. I think the guy actually did kill himself, right? You talked yeah. for quite a few hours and he was yeah. dead inside. Oh, yeah, he was dead. Yeah, I just remember. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, yeah, he was, he was dead. It was on Samuel down there on. Uh, in southeast, um, he was in an apartment. Shot himself, and I was just ta- I talked to him for hours while he was dead. So,
1: Something so what do you to... take
2: away from that, Larry? Yeah,
1: that's a good point.
0: in uh, In what way? What do you? I mean, um, what do you take away as a police officer, and what do you take away as a negotiator from that?
1: Because in a per in a person,
0: you, right? Yeah, you. I mean, you're literally talking to a dead guy, trying to get him to come out of the apartment, which. Now your hindsight, one,
1: right?
0: Hindsight, we know that guy's never coming out. Yeah. Uh, so, does it give you? Does it kind of kick you in the balls? Does it, you know, where you're like, man, what's the point of this? You know.
2: Um. Initially, um, I felt that way, but um, after a while, um, once you started, and it was this is kind of weird, but once you start talking to no one you learn to talk to someone in your brain, but, okay. but you're, 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 audibilizing what you're saying, right? You're, you're, you're speaking, but I can have a conversation with nobody. I can have a conversation and, 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 in order to, and, and, and how do you have that conversation is the inflection in your voice. You know, um, if you, if, if I'm loud hailing a guy and, and I'm just talking to a guy, I would say, this is Dallas Police SWAT team coming out the front door. We have the house surrounded. See, I'm not talking to anybody. There's no inflection in my voice. But if I was actually having a conversation with somebody, I would say, "Hey, you know what? This is Dallas Police SWAT team. We do me a favor, big favor. Come out the front. You know, it, it's a different type right. Of speech. Okay, it's a different type of speech, and it reaches people. The 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 the, the auto tone doesn't reach many people because they're they're sitting there hiding peeking out the window saying I ain't coming out but when you say something to the fact that james listen i know you're sitting in there thinking we're gonna go away james we're not going away
1: and james was the uh a pop a pocket right it was who oh yeah yeah
2: yeah, yeah, That's a man that yeah. we
1: can yeah. talk about
2: yeah yeah he, yeah yeah and, he was and, smoking so- a cigarette. Yeah, J- no. James was uh he was he was a hard one because he was mentally ill. Those are the worst people to negotiate with because really? they're, not, they're not on our time clock. They're on another clock. And you and they can wear you down. So yeah, yeah, that was James. I forgot, yeah. It was his name was James. Uh,
0: and, and so that was, uh, yeah, that, that's what I was gonna say. Why don't you go ahead and set that up? That that is yeah, a good point with the apocalypse van. Go ahead and set that up, Larry.
2: Uh what happened was James James bolware was um he was a guy who he was, he was thinking about doing an active shooter in Paris. He was thinking about shooting up a school in Paris, Texas. That is okay in Paris, Texas. And, um, I guess someone called and said, Hey, this guy you might want to check this guy out he's going to shoot somebody whatever the case may be. Uh, Paris, Texas went and interviewed him, um, it pissed him off. Um, so what he did was it pushed him to, he came back to Dallas. He assaulted his mom and they were like, hey, this guy's unstable. We need to take his son away. His son's about like 10, 11 years old. Okay. And, and so CPS took his son away because James was unstable. And once they did that, um, Yeah. Once they took his son away, and they charged James with um family violence assault because he choked his mother when they took the son. So mm. with that. So that's why Dallas PD was kind of connected into it. Um, because uh, Dallas PD is charging with that assault, so James comes to headquarters about midnight. Around midnight, thank God it was at midnight. Why he came at midnight, I don't know, but he comes to, to uh, in, with a uh, apocalypse vehicle um, that he bought on eBay for like six thousand six hundred dollars, I think. And um, he comes to the front of the, the headquarters, and the and the van is a old Guineca County SWAT van with shooting ports on the side of the van. So James, what he does, he's, he pulls up the van, parks, walk to the back of the van out out one of the shooting ports. Oh, let me back up. Prior to that. He, and James told me this, he pulled the van up in the parking lot next to headquarters. He got the device, a bomb and he was walking the bomb to sit it down, but he seen some police officers. So he stopped. He said he didn't want them to get that bag. He said, they went inside. He set the bomb down. And then he got in the van and pulled in front of headquarters and shot up the headquarters with a rifle and Right. that, that started the whole thing off. And he had a bunch of C4 in that van. No, he didn't have any. He just, he had didn't have, no. he just
1: said he had, he just, had some
2: he said he had it. Um, it That's was what it was. Yeah. It was, it was black powder, but it, we thought it was, we thought it was C4. He said it was C4. He said he had 20 pounds, but it wasn't. It was just. So, black so
1: how does that whole thing go? how long does it last and i find the last part interesting how you know smoking a cigarette doing this thing and you guys took him out right
2: yeah what happened was um it lasted um i was on the phone with him about uh four hours right around four hours wow um what happened was um Once once it once we uh uh Dallas County Sheriff spiked his tires and he pulled into a uh um uh jack in the box. And he once he pulled Mm -hmm. it jack in the box, he opened the back door and just opened up on the officers, the patrol officer that was following him. And we were behind the chase, the car chase, so I finally get there, and I'm thinking, okay, uh, I got. I grabbed everything that killed. I grabbed all my mags. I didn't grab a phone or anything. I was like, okay, he opened that door again. I'm just gonna dump a mag inside the back door. While I'm sitting there beside the bank, relieving the patrol officers, uh, my supervisor says, "Hey, he just called 911. He wants to talk." So I had to run all the way back to my car, get on the phone with him, start talking to him, um, try to get him calmed down. Um, after after about. Probably about four that morning, I got on the phone with him. Probably about midnight. I mean, it was just after midnight, and about four, he set the bomb off at the headquarters. He he called it and he armed it. I didn't know that at the time, but um, the FBI got his phone, uh, got his phone number and stuff. He armed it because he had a, a phone on the on the device. And just a side note, they flew a guy here, uh, ATF agent from DC, to try to recreate that device. And he couldn't do it. He said, man, I know this stupid guy can't do this device. They 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 weren't sure who did it. At that time, they had never seen it in the United States. Really? Yeah, a few months later, it was in Yakima. They seen another one. He, this the, the ATF guy told me, we only seen this in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've never seen this here. So um, anyway, once the device goes off, my lieutenant said, hey, push him and see what happens. So I decided just I talked real reckless to him. I talked. I called him a vagina. I didn't say vagina. I said. We hey, you said I,
1: like, oh, what's what's up? You are gonna be like defending your son?
2: Yeah. You gonna be a fucking father.
1: That's like exactly. you were like
2: yeah. called him out. Yeah. I, like, I, are I, you gonna I, be yeah. there for
1: your son? What the fuck are you doing?
2: That's exactly what I told him. I said, you know, I called him a pussy. I called him. I called him everything. I talked to him real reckless, and just to see, just to see what he did, because we were hoping he would cook the the device off and just blow himself up.
1: Right. And he, he threatened that too.
2: Oh yeah. He threatened that the whole time. But he I'll never, blow you
1: all up with my yeah. sinful. You
2: know? Yeah. But he, he never did. Uh, it actually had the reverse effect. It made him childlike after I was like a, you know, really? yeah, I was like a father to him or something. And
1: yeah. that's when he kind of grew a, a little bit of a relationship with them and knew how to handle them. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I knew Keith was on a house about 80 yards out with a 50 cal because we had shot the radiator and put about four rounds in the radiator while I was on the phone with him. And he went off and like, you know, you guys are crazy. I, I, um, I got a bomb in here and I'm telling him, Hey, we're not fucking around. Uh, James, get your ass out of that van, get, get your ass out of the fucking van. You know, I was just going off on him. Right. And he was like, okay, let me think about it. I'm gonna smoke a cigarette. And by this time, I know we have a code 100 on him, and a code 100 is when the when a sniper see him, shoot him. That's a code 100. So, and I knew I had to make it to the command post. I was at the command post, but I'm sitting in my own Tahoe. I'm on the phone with him. I knew I had to make it to the lieutenant to tell him take that code 100 off. But I got about five steps, and I'm and I'm I'm running past Chief Cato, who is the chief of Mesquite now. Mm-hmm. I'm running past him. And I heard that 50 cal go off, and Chief Cato oh, hey, jumped about this high. I'm like, what was that? I said, we just shot him. He said, are you sure? I said, yeah. I said, I didn't recognize 50 cal. And I, I couldn't get over there fast enough to say, wow. hey, take the code 100 off. Take it off. Take it off. He's thinking about yeah. So he raised up, because he was behind the driver's seat, and he raised up. then keeps Keith saw him and shot him.
1: That was, under the circumstances, that was probably – the right move, do you, do
2: you not agree? Yeah, I mean, we had to end it. Um, he was talking about blowing people up, um, you know, and I was devastated after they shot him about a day, really. Early. Yeah, oh, yeah, without a doubt.
1: You thought you had him,
2: you yeah, had him, um, you yeah. could save him. Yeah, yeah, I was devastated. It's almost like you know, you know, the end of the game, you're about to catch this touchdown, you're all alone, and you're you know, no time on the clock, and you drop the pass. He's just, you right. just devastated. I had it. We, I, I mean, we won, we won the game and I you just
1: get, you can get there in time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But you know, it, it lasts about two days and I was good after that. So
0: in this, you take away, you know, you're almost there. This happens. Uh, ultimately it, uh, comes to a resolution that you didn't want it to come to. Um, But it did come to a resolution. Mm -hmm. So once again, and and I do this for each one of these things because I want people to understand the psychology behind what you're doing, what you carry with you. What do you walk away from this one? This one you had one, and you lost it in the end. Mm -hmm. So what do you walk away with this one? And what do you learn going forward? Because coming up very quickly behind this is the one that changed your career.
2: Yeah. I think the the biggest thing that the biggest takeaway from this one is, um, you know, just our, the way we do our business in Dallas SWAT And that was the biggest thing because that was the failure because if I was still on the phone with him and we had a second person, a secondary person there to help me, he could have went and told the Lieutenant. So the, the takeaway was more of a, um, an operational uh, flaw that we had because you know, every, every negotiating team, this side of, you know, the, the Atlantic has a team, has a negotiation team, everybody. But the problem with Dallas SWAT is we have a integrated team. So the negotiators are, are SWAT officers. And some of the guys wants to go to the house instead of go to the phone. So, um, and coupled with the fact that we have so many of them, and we just get desensitized to it. So you know, like if 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 let's say you know, plain old negotiators, they get a call out right now. It's probably gonna have nine negotiators because they don't get them very often, and don't give them, get them very often. You know, our you know our SWAT team gets gets called out constantly on on nonsense so you get desensitized to it and that's that's part of the part of what happened
0: so you think from a not from a personal perspective then this comes from uh training and i'm
1: gonna step away for two minutes sorry
0: this comes from like a training and uh desensitization um so Once that happens, once you're desensitized, you don't get it back. No. Whether you're in the military, whatever it may be. Uh, Chefs get it, you know, when they can be around hot stuff all the time or whatever it is. Once that uh, sensitivity goes away, it never comes back. So how do you move forward without that sensitivity there? Because I would believe that right behind that desensitization comes jadedness. And yeah. with jadedness, you get a little less and less empathetic is the word you used.
2: Yeah. And, and, and it can happen. Um, that's why you have, um, it, you know, it helps to have countermeasures and the countermeasures are people that can check you or you check yourself. You have the, you, you, uh, w- what we have called, we call the board. We don't, we never use it. My board was a steno pad but, you know, you get, if you get the negotiations, they have a board and they have and it have things written on the board. So, okay, we're gonna check that off. We're gonna check that off. We're gonna do that. We're gonna do this and you have, and you have, and it's, it's the, the barricaded subject is run by a group. It's not necessarily just run by one person. You know, it's, it's not a group team thing. Everybody has their own jobs and ability. Like you're supposed to have a guy on the phone. That's a primary. You're supposed to have a guy listening. That's the secondary. You're supposed to have an intel guy, which the guy's running back and forth to his family. You know, hey, what's he like to eat and this and that. And, you know, you have a guy running the board. And Dallas PD, we do none of that. We, you know, unless it's a big deal. Unless it's a it, it's a huge deal. But, you know, it's just, we just don't do it. We just lazy, basically. So, I, you know,
0: and... It- do you think that that came forward to bite you guys uh, in the next scenario that we're talking about? Or do you think that it was okay with the situation that was in place? Because I would think that 90, 95% of the situations goes into, it's going to be okay. Because if it wasn't, that would change quickly. It would change procedures, general orders, all that kind
2: of stuff. Yeah. I mean, um, we could change it. We We just don't. You know, with that machismo thing going on, you know, um, but the the situation that when I was by myself again on seven, seven and actually it was I had just got back from Quantico 28 days prior to that. And I was and the FBI negotiators were downstairs texting me saying, hey, I think uh, you
0: should explain what you were doing in Quantico. Uh, I think that'll help people understand why they were down there talking to you.
2: Yeah, what, what the deal with James Bowe?r it was the first time it has ever happened in history in the United States. We've shot law enforcement shot some with a 50 caliber sniper rifle and, the, and did a command charge on this vehicle. And that type of it was just it was just never happened. So what they did was they got me in the school in Quantico, a hostage negotiation school and um, it's hostage and kidnapping. Kidnapping part was great. And um, I was there for two weeks and it was myself and another guy from uh, uh from oregon he was a, a county guy from oregon we were only two police officers there everybody else was fbi agents and um we learned a lot um and it was a dallas officer, uh the dallas fbi agents from the field office in dallas that was there with me and, and we were all on the same team so when we did these scenarios we went from like seven in the morning to like 10 at night i mean we went it, it was it was humping it was humping and we had uh, the the hostage rescue team hrt out of out of dc well not out of dc but they are out of quantico but um there were some bad mofos they were some bad dudes um and we worked with them we did scenarios with them and i mean and my negotiation ability was helped exponentially It was it was help just going to the school, but anyway, after that, twenty eight days later, seven seven happened. Really? Yeah, and those people that was downstairs texting me was in Quantico with me, and they were like, "Hey, we're down here." I'm like, and I was telling them, "Hey, just FYI, I'm not on the phone." I said, "I'm in the hallway," and I said, "I can't ask you to come up here and do this. You know, you didn't sign up for that." She's like, "They were like, no, we have vests, we have helmets, we'll come." I said, "Please come on, I, I need you." But our command staff wouldn't let them up. Oh, really? Yeah, We'll let them upstairs. So let's let's go into let's go into
0: July seventh. Um, and it's interesting, you know, Jeff. Jeff thinks that uh, a really interesting part of this story is what you're doing prior. Am I correct in saying that, Jeff? Uh, before I think everything, so. yeah. So what you're doing prior? Uh, you hear that this happens, and let's. I mean, let's go from here. Let's walk through the night because this is what we came here for. So, what are you doing before it comes out? As it comes out? After it comes out?
2: Uh, before it comes out came out, we were we worked all the the uh, protests in SWAT. Ever since I've been in SWAT, we worked every protest. We just we just worked every protest. We had snipers up. Um, for some reason, we didn't work this protest. We were we were on the tag beats, which is we were doing patrol duties. We were full time SWAT team. We don't do patrol duties. We were doing patrol mm. duties that, that night. So, uh, we're doing patrol duties and I'm on the phone with my niece. And my niece is is talking to me about her son. You know, she has a um, he's I think he's fifteen right now. By the time he's probably eleven or so, and she's like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm I'm worried about, you know, my son, is he going to get shot and this and that? And I'm trying to explain to her, no, you know, it's not as bad as you think. And she's crying. And and I remember while I was while I was on the phone with her and I was talking to her about a number of shootings and uh, she's saying, you know, they're killing us and this. And I I heard the officer down on the radio and I told her, mm. hey, um, I got to call you back. And I hung up and I listened and it was downtown which just about two minutes. or so where I was and I just headed that way to downtown. So you get there,
0: you see everything that's going on, uh, on the outside as you're coming in, uh, throw on all your gear, correct?
2: Yeah. I threw it on while I was in route. I stopped and and put all my gear on. Okay.
0: That's smart. And so, uh, when we talked to Matt about is he talked about the different ammunition that he could have taken into there? He decided to uh, kind of double up, take both kinds of ammunition with him. Anything special about what you're taking in there with you? Of course, you're going to be the negotiator, but is there anything that you're special taking in there?
2: Yeah, I made sure I grabbed a phone this time because, okay. yeah, because I didn't have one with James, because in case I need to talk, and also I, I did have barrier rounds. So I, I knew once okay. I knew, once I knew he was inside a, a location. I put the barrier rounds in. So I knew we may have to shoot through a barrier. So I already had my barrier rounds in. I already had it loaded in my rifle. So you get there.
1: I'm sorry, but this was like words worth of weapons. Like this was the the point in the book where you're going from negotiator, but you're still an active shooter. You're still in shooter mode.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're trying to get to a location that suits you for what you
2: need to do. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. And we were actually told so, to go to the headquarters though at first. So. So as as you
0: get there, the building, you know, he's inside the building. Uh, set the scene for us outside. What do you see as you're going in, and what mind state does this put you into? Because we asked Matt the same thing.
2: Yeah. yeah um. Once we once we get once I get there, um. Uh. I remember parking. I had to park by the. It was so many squad cars. I had to park by the um, um, Greyhound station. Okay. So, so I h- hook up with two other SWAT guys as we get just so having we got there at the same time. We hooked up. I'm already out. I'm I'm already dressed, so I'm I'm ready to rock. So um, once we get there, um, we knew that he had been shooting out of uh, the parking garage or somewhere in that area. So we started making it, and and we we hugged the building. We start hugging the building of that parking garage, and I remember looking up at the parking garage, and I see a rifle. And I remember, I remember asking the patrol officers, "Where's he at? Where's the suspect at?" And they pointed, you know, different directions. Oh Oh, no! Yeah, I'm like, oh man, okay. And I said, "Who is that guy right there?" Nobody knew it was a guy with a rifle. And I'm just sitting up there looking at, sitting underneath the this uh, building, looking at the parking garage, looking at the guy with a rifle. So I'm thinking if that guy point that rifle at in this direction, I'm going to shoot at him. I don't know who he is, but if he pointed at us, I'm going to shoot at him. Come to find out it was a deployment officer, some deployment officer. But anyway, um they finally told us uh after Mike uh Sergeant Mike Smith got shot, they said, Hey, he's around on the other side. He's shooting out that side of the building. And the APC pulled up right after dropped Mike off and said, He's shooting out that side of the building. So we went to the to the the glass that he shot out right where Brent Thompson had got shot and we stepped over Brent. I remember looking down at the brain matter of Brent Thompson. And I was like, mm. Oh my God. And I remember thinking, I'm going to die in here. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to die in here. And so
1: this guy was actually a headhunter. Oh, uh, he's
2: he, he, uh, he, he was, he, he, he was, he was, he was different. He was yeah. that guy. he was the guy you trained for basically he
0: was so yeah you know. in saying that when you it, it's interesting that you said i'm going to die in here tonight that's exactly what went through matt's head matt said i'm going to die here mm-hmm. and matt said that he took it a step further and said that he thought is it going to hurt is mm-hmm. it going uh, to is it going to go chest. fast is it going to go slow is it yeah. going to uh, uh, he thought of a uh, very detailed like things. it's
1: going to burn yeah. my chest up I'm be it, shot.
0: Absolutely absolutely so he um he he says the same thing as you going in I'm going to die here tonight yeah. Now that puts a that makes a very uh heightened sense of awareness not only about you but everyone around you mm-hmm. So let's talk because I think people need to hear this and it's the same thing that I said to Matt You know or you think that you're going to die in there. Mm-hmm. How do you keep going through the door?
2: Well, um, I think the fact that it, it was it was more of a training thing that I said to myself, I said, breathe, relax, focus. I mean, I said that the whole time. It was almost like a, a chant, almost like, <laughs> like a, you know, just like a chant, like relax. Mm-hmm focus because because that's what's going to get you killed if you don't have good tactics and you don't take that blind spot or you don't pie this corner correctly it's going to get you shot so i knew i had to just focus i knew so I your
1: tactics focus. were also like your 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 words take the emotions out of it focus on your job yeah follow your procedures your training that's what you focused on
2: yeah and, and you had to, and and all the while, while we're searching for him, we're coming up on people, you know. So I mean, oh, you
1: have a blood trail.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and you're coming up on officers, you're coming up on students, and just a you know, you come around a corner and you confront somebody, and you're like, "Oh my God, okay, it's a it's a woman," and you keep going, "Oh my God, it's officer, okay, keep going," and you know, it was just that it was just almost yeah. just a roller coaster of emotions going through the school. And it was just, it, it, and I'm sure it was only five minutes. Um, I don't, I can't even, t- time is so distorted. It was so distorted. I can't even. I tell. You how it was.
0: Matt compared it to a dreamscape. He said, it's, it's almost like you go into a living dream as you come through the door that's going through your head. Everything slows down around you. Um, and and like you said, you you make it to the stairwell. So you get upstairs. Uh, now, we have some pictures. That we, uh, I'll let you, Jeff, in just a second. Uh, we have some pictures, and we're going to actually show where you were at. So I want you to describe those. But Jeff, go ahead and uh, ask.
1: So I was going to say, so Baines said, like, his, when he's in the moment, auditory went blank. Mm-hmm. His, his hearing, but the, his vision was there. For you, you, did you have certain um, instincts or um, visual, hearing? Did you have any defaults, or were all your senses intact and you were formidable to go ahead?
2: Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I, I mean, it was it was so honed at that point. Um, the only thing that I think was. Um, the only thing that I can think of it, because whenever I'm in a situation and I've noticed this ever since I was in patrol and you know and working on narcotics, whenever it's chaos around me, it it I, I try to be as calm as possible. It calms me down actually. That's
1: a uniqueness. And I think that's what happened you growing up. Yeah. When you were so young, calm, just just to tie it in.
2: Yeah. It just that might Yep. Yeah, yeah, I just it it, and so, and I'm I'm able to think and process information when you know uh, it's when it's that is um everything is you know it's chaos yeah so, so um as far as the auditory exclusion I didn't get it um it's just the you know I got the distortion the chronological distortion some things that I think happened previously <laughs> it didn't happen. You know, it's just, it, it stresses, it's, it's, it's hail on you. Stress is hail. Yeah.
0: So you move up, you get upstairs. Let's, let's go ahead and look at some of the pictures. You kind of describe okay. what we're looking at. Okay? okay.
2: That's the hallway right there where he was in. If you, if you walk through that opening right there and turn to the left, and take about a couple steps. He was in that little alcove to the right. He was right oh, in there.
0: That's pretty close. Yeah. And you'll notice a lot of the is shot out. There's
2: a lot of bullet holes. Drywall. Wall. Yeah, and it was that's all that's all the only thing was up there is drywall. So it was it was it wasn't good.
1: So really wasn't the structures that were keeping you safe. It was a just obstruction of vision.
2: Yeah, abusive. it was, and we call, in the police world we call it um, not cover. Cover is something that a bullet that can't go through. We call <laughs> right. it. It was only concealment. Concealment is like bushes. concealment. Yeah. It's just you're being concealed from the bad guy, like bushes or even a curtain. If you're behind a curtain or whatever case may be, it's just concealment. It's not cover. That right there is almost his perspective, but that opening, you can see the opening of the light to the left there. That's where he was, and that little black thing at the end of the corner, that's where I was behind it. It, it was basically okay. a, a ballistic blanket. Or so we're up. talking 50 feet, 65 feet? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, prob- yeah, probably.
1: Are you talking to him the whole time yet?
2: Yeah, the whole time. I, the whole time that I got out there, Matt was talking to him first.
1: So, so you're moving the whole time and talking?
2: Yeah, I just uh, when I got up there, I was I was stationary at that corner right there, talking to him the whole time.
1: It's a lot of big chips off the drywall there.
2: Yeah. So this is a third
0: picture, um, but it, it looks pretty much the same. But the the thing I want to point out is everything that is destroyed around there. And once again, we want to point out that there's really, I mean. 50, 65 feet away from this guy who has already killed five officers, wounded 11 more, and shot a civilian. And you're 65 feet away from him talking.
2: Yeah. And we had to be on top of him like that because um, we, we couldn't let him get away. We had to, you know, and we didn't know how those hallways, it was like a maze up there. We just couldn't get, let him get away. He had, We had to be on top of him like that.
0: Right. So there's no, once again, As you're thinking, as you're going through the door, through the stairwell, we still got to stand here. Yeah. So you start talking to this guy, initial impression of talking to him.
2: Uh, very likable guy. Um, and with absolutely no fear, he didn't have any fear. He knew we were there, uh, essentially to kill him. He knew he was going to die and that's what he wanted to do. And that, that was kind of shocking from the beginning.
1: He's a very likable guy. So he had a some sort of intrinsic whimsical personality within the devious wanna kill everybody thing.
2: Yeah. And that that's what that's what stood out to me because he was he wasn't um, you know, you have this thing in your brain about what the bad guy's gonna be, what what, you know, what the boogeyman's gonna be. He wasn't a boogeyman. He was just a guy.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, he was just a guy.
1: Smart, sharp, yeah. Um, and very convicted with what was gonna happen. Mm-hmm. He was down for anything. And
2: yeah. yeah. He was he he knew he had a SWAT team on that floor to kill him and he wasn't afraid.
0: Well, Matt even said that he was funny, that he made yeah. Matt laugh a couple times. Yeah.
2: I laughed I laughed at him a couple times. He was very funny. He laughed, he sang, he sang this song. He sang. Austin. Yeah, he sang um he was singing this song um uh rolling on the river. And and I mm-hmm. really yeah, Tina Turner and I was at and 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 let me see a few months prior to that, me and my family had went on a, a cruise. And, oh and, yeah. And we and we were playing um uh trivia, music trivia, and I was doing well. I was I was I was knocking them down. <laughs> and that song came on, and he was like, "What's the name of this song?" And I said, "Rolling on the river." And I got, oh, it. I got it wrong. I got the I got it wrong. And it was proud Mary. Proud Mary, right? Proud Mary. Mary. Yeah, okay. Proud Mary. I and couldn't understand was, that. Yeah, he was singing that song, and I said, "I bet you a hundred dollars you'll know the name of that song." And he said, uh, "Rolling on the river." I said, "Nope." It's proud Mary. He's like, "Oh." oh. Okay. Yeah, and, and, I, and I knew that because I had been on a cruise and I lost, you know, I lost because of that song.
0: And Jeff, you should know that Larry only likes me to this day uh, because of a song that he heard playing on my car
2: one day. What was it? Go ahead, Larry. I was walking into the building one day and I hear this the song, rap? a rap song produced by Dr. Dre. Okay. It was Mary J. Blige. And, it, and I was walking and I hear, you know, and I expect to turn around and see this ghetto black dude that's driving <laughs> up. And I look and it was Kelly. And I don't even think I knew your name at the time.
1: What song was it?
2: It was, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of uh, it. Family Affair. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh really? That's a good song.
2: Yeah. And I looked over and I looked at him. And I don't, I don't know if you saw me staring at you when you got out of the car. I'm like, I can't believe he was, and and it's fine listening to the song. I'm not saying the fact that he was listening to the song. It's just that I heard that I heard him before I saw him. That's how loud it was. Yeah, loud it
1: was. <laughs> he was rolling up hard, dog. Yeah, he up yeah, hard. Yeah, he was. He's trying to prove a point. I'm here to. <laughs> I'm here to
0: eat. I'm here to eat. But here, you know, here's the thing, and and the reason I bring that up is uh, one perceptions. And we need to talk about that because I think that it's important Important. that we talk about perceptions from the public, Mm -hmm. perceptions from police, perceptions from the suspect's point of view. And you thought, without even looking up, what did you think about that music? Who was rolling up on you?
2: It had to be a black dude, Um, black, black, black female, actually. I just thought I oh, like, you know? yeah. There, that's yeah. thanks for giving him that sound <laughs> <town laughs> bite. Thank you so much <laughs> just, for saying that. Because it's Mary, <laughs> it's Mary J. Blige. You know what I mean? And and, yeah. you know, and hey, listen, know,
0: notorious Big wrapped with Mary J. Blige. I don't want to hear that
2: shit about it was a girl rolling oh, up. No, oh, I'm, really not right. that. I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it because my wa- my wife loves Mary J. Blige, so it just uh, you're not helping things.
1: So Dustin was both in tune with rap and female
0: rap. (laughs) So that's a strong perception though. When you go into this situation, is it different this time? Because when we talk about the headquarters shooter, okay, Uh and you're talking to him and you go through everything and finally you get to where you're cussing him out to get out. Right. Yeah. And then we move to this one. As you come in, you know, going into this, and it's the same thing I asked Matt. This is not going to end well. No. It's someone is not winning this one. Someone yeah. there's going to be. This is a zero sum game. Someone's going to win. Someone's going to lose this one. Does it change how you approach the situation talking to him?
2: Usually, but and in, and in a uh, small part of me said I can I can get it. Okay. I, I, can, I can even though you said I'm going to die here tonight. Yeah, yeah. Be be. I I said that because I didn't know where he was. You know. What I'm okay. Saying? You know what I'm not saying? because your negotiating skills.
1: Yeah. But because of your location and not knowing mm-hmm. what vantage point he had on you.
2: Yeah, because you ever you ever see a movie where like the the hero Tom Cruise or whoever is hiding in a in, right. a, in a you know office building and you get the the three bad guys that's searching the office building to kill him. Well, that's diehard. Yeah, yeah, like, like, perfect, like diehard, diehard. Um, um, Bruce Willis had the advantage. We don't, you know, you you think it's three bad guys with rifles or whatever case may be is looking for Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis has the advantage because he can get them at choke points. He knows where they are. They don't know where he is. He can. He's get got a radio. Him. Yeah, he, I mean, he can get him at doorways. He, has, he knows what's up. Yeah. So that's that's why I was saying that you know because he, he has the advantage because he it you know you you could funnel us down the hallway and we don't know where he is but he knows where we are because he was hears there
1: me. any point you felt like you had the advantage?
2: Uh, no, no, not no, 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 point, not, no, no point at all. Uh, no because problem. because it's it's hard to have the advantage from a guy who has nothing to lose. Because he's going and this to guy didn't.
1: Like he he was saying, you no, know, he even said, you know, from talking to Baines, um, he's talking about all sorts of crazy stuff. So in your experience talking, what was there any things he said that you can remember that were like this guy ain't right?
2: Um no. Not, not at all. I mean, he was very lucid, very, um, he, he was, he was correct on a lot of stuff he was saying, you know, he was, and, you know, James Bower told me, he told us where Osama bin Laden was. So I knew he was a little detached from reality, you know, but this guy, um, he, you know, I'm sure for, you know, uh, I don't know, a psychologist would say he was, he was delusional, but, but I don't, I don't like to say people, are crazy because he when you say somebody's crazy it's dismissive. It's dismissive of I agree their, with that. it's dismissive of their motives. Like, oh that guy's, you know, why do he do that? Oh, this guy's crazy. This guy no, was, it's too easy. Yeah, this guy wasn't crazy to me.
1: No. He was calculated. Yeah. He was ready. He was dark. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: And so Larry, I think this is a perfect time as you're talking to him. Uh you said that he doesn't sound crazy. He sounds like he knows what he's doing. Uh, And we have some recordings of you talking to him Um, What's gonna help out is it's uh, Larry has made it to where the words are on the screen so you can see Why you're watching. Let's listen to a part of this. We're gonna talk about uh, Revolution Um, you and I have talked about this already Larry. I've showed you the clip Uh, We're gonna play revolution and then what goes through your mind. What goes through his mind? Where do we move from here on the debate? Okay
2: I understand that. But maybe if you tell your story on some type of news channel, the people who don't feel you will feel you. I'm you the match, Martin, Louis, McKinney. Say amen. There's been too many people talking. you Talk me, talk me. It's over. the record. It's up for the record. You
0: are my brother. You are the record. I'm not signing No, not, not. Let's stop right there for just a second, Larry. Okay. He tells you right there, it's time to stop talking. It's time for revolution. Turn your rifle on those behind you. Mm-hmm. He's inciting you. Yeah. Let's talk about that, man. That's a powerful thing to tell you to like turn on now, your brothers. Yeah. because And, and, and you would agree because we, we've already established that he was there to kill white cops. That was his... Yeah motive Mm -hmm. and the thing that i think is interesting about that part is he's using you as another black man Mm -hmm. to carry on his idea yeah um but he thought he was so into his thought that in his brain it registered that all i gotta do is tell this guy to turn around he'll do what him and i he wouldn't have ever told that to baines
2: yeah no no he wouldn't and and yeah. the the first thing he did and and if, when he you heard him say if you are my brother so therefore he knew i was black but before he didn't know i was black
1: yeah he even said you don't sound black
2: yeah and yeah. i told yeah i told him i went to college that's why i don't sound black and he laughed and he, he started laughing and and immediately i knew i can get that emotionality down when i can get, when i get him laughing that emotionality would go down when that rationality would go up. So yeah, he, he definitely wanted me to be honest. Let,
0: let's talk about that statement right there. He says, you're not black. And you said, I went to college. That's why I don't sound black. Mm-hmm. That's one of those statements that heard from the outside. People don't understand it, but there's a meaning that comes behind it. Yeah. And so I want you to, to have the opportunity because that's in the book and what i don't want is people to get the wrong perceptions reading the book i want you to explain that because that that in itself is a crazy statement but it's a true statement you're yeah. an educated man
2: yeah i mean and and that was you know it was it was a little tongue-in-cheek but i was actually i was serious i, I mean um you know you and and it's and before i I knew what it was it was it's really called code switching before i knew what it was and you you speak in a certain way um because you know black folks we have a black meter we have to turn them we have to turn that meter down (laughs) just turn it down a little bit you can't go around all day with that meter up high because you you won't have a job or nothing but um you know you got the black meter you got to turn it down you know, kind I of, thought
0: Baines was going to be trouble
2: on the show. <laughs> you got to turn the black meter down. Seriously, you got to turn it down.
1: So, do you adjust that black meter depending on where you're at?
0: Oh, without a doubt,
2: without a doubt. Mm-hmm.
0: So, you're talking to him. You say, "I I sound, I sound like this because I'm educated. I went to college." Mm-hmm. He's talking to you're trying to talk to him, and and once again, let's reiterate the point. Your whole job, your whole job tonight is not to kill this guy. It's to talk him out. That is your job.
2: Yes. Yeah, and um, that's that's true. Uh, That's my job, but also part of it is to get him in a position for us to kill him. Right. Okay. You know what I mean? Uh, Agreed. Kind of like James.
0: Still yeah. talking. Yeah. You're yeah. not assaulting. Yeah. Yeah, Still no. talking.
2: Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So he
0: tells you the time for talking is over. Mm-hmm. I want a revolution. Right there, you're hitting a dead end. That's yeah. a that's a wall right there. Mm-hmm. How do you break through
2: that wall? Keep the conversation going. Because I understand. I understand what he meant by that. He. What said, do you mean? He. What he What he was saying was, it's the the talking and the. The protesting is over. Not necessarily talking to me. The talking and the protesting was over because he was tired of the walking, the holding hands. the we He's shelter. ready for
1: action. Yeah.
2: he he Action.
1: He action. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's what he was saying. The, t- the time for talking is over because he said Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and all those people, they talk, talk, talk. He, talk, he brings talk, up and they right. all
1: died. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. He brings it up and that's what he was absolutely was meaning. He was saying that time for talking is over time for action. And he wanted some bloodshed basically.
0: And so you, you, yeah. yeah. And and so you talked to him about all this. You talked to him, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, Kwame, he brings up the Gullah wars to you. Um, and, and you, you even told him you're going to have to give me a minute. I don't know that. So, uh, at that point you I don't think you lose credibility with him but he allows you to look it up so that you guys can go on talking so you're winning this battle mm-hmm. he he is allowing you to continue the conversation because at first he really wasn't talking to you that much Um,
2: yeah he wasn't I think uh, in you know negotiations you have a hook and the hook is like if someone's let's say someone is inside of a house and they got a daughter or whatever he loves a daughter you use a daughter as a yeah, hook. something yeah. you know, yeah you the 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 fact that I was that I was black was my hook, okay and okay, him. and
0: so he tells you, turn the rifle, kill the guys behind you mm-hmm. um, I think you tell him I can't do that, yeah, because that's uh it's the law. It's
2: against the law. Yeah, it's law. I can't against the sure law. I'm sure
0: it raised a couple of hairs on people going, oh, shit, he's just not killing us because <laughs> oh, it's against shit. the law. <laughs> Remember all those times we fucked with Larry? Oh, shit.
1: Oh, shit. So, We're you know. He's going to fucking take it, it this Maybe
0: Maybe some rifles came off safe on that one. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so he says that. Now, I, I say that to say this. We're going to go into a little more of what he's saying. This is the the... Him finishing up telling you to turn around. So he tells you turn around. If you're my brother, turn around, kill all these cops, everything behind you. And he goes into this.
2: year later some shit, kill them all. Oh shit.
1: That is fucked up.
0: Yeah. So where are we at now? What is going through your brain? Because those are powerful, powerful words being
2: said to you. Yeah, that um, that resonated as far as what his mindset was. Um, he's trying to call me to arms, even though I'm trying. We're trying to kill him. You know what I mean? That that was that was something. He's
1: trying to convert.
2: Yeah, a good
1: highly qualified police officer SWAT negotiated training he's actually trying to get no negotiate you to kill them all in a year or so
2: yeah and how it, it was how
1: a reverse role
2: yeah, in a fucked up that? way yeah yeah and so wow.
0: Here, here's the first psychology question that I have about it okay. In all the negotiations you've done and all the schools you've been to. What do you think went through his head that he thought I can turn this dude and get him to come on my side? Or do you think that that was just kind of dragging you along with it?
2: Yeah, I think it was a little, uh a little bravado on his part. Um, okay. He probably didn't think I was going to do it, um, but you know, it was worth a try and, you know, and and, and, it, and it gave me a little, you know, insight into his his psyche and what he wanted. So, you know, I think it was just, uh, you know, a little beating his chest in that part Cause he, because of how sadistic it was. He said, no, and, but, and kill him in a year from now. You know what I'm saying? He didn't say yeah. shoot now. He said, no, 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 wait, wait. He said, while you're having a beer with him about a year later, kill him, kill all of them. So Yeah, I think, get
1: close to him. Yeah. You use your brotherhood.
2: Mm -hmm. to advantage
1: which is really fucked up actually
0: Um, side point uh, no one ever drank beer with Larry ever again after that night (laughs) (laughs) so uh, you're talking to him uh, he tells you this you keep talking to him you've got the hook set in him you're thinking in your brain are you thinking at, at any point in this are you thinking this guy's full of shit no
2: no, not one time. Not, not, you knew it. Not, not one. Uh, I mean, and he, I mean
0: even, and Larry, I mean even, like telling you to do that when he told you to turn. Around, Man, this guy's full of shit. He's just seeing how many chains he can yank tonight.
2: No, um, he was he was very resolved about what he was doing. I mean, he, he just he just he just shot twelve guys, you know. <laughs> I mean he just shot 12 guys. So no. No, shot
1: 12 killed five.
2: Yeah. You know, at the time I didn't know how many died, but yeah, I mean he he was he was uh, he was going it was this was the guy. This was the guy you go to the range for and they, that target turn and you're moving and shooting and you're training going down the hallway, that's that guy. Did you have
1: mad respect for him because you knew he was a very legitimate fellow,
2: right? Yeah. He yeah, definitely.
1: That was something that you're like This guy's a legitimate foe. We have Baines. We have SWAT. You're SWAT. Um, You're trying to get in a, a position to shoot also and to negotiate. That's a fine line for you individually, but you have all your teammates working, which they're actually really close. They're 25, 30 feet. There's drywall. You don't know. There's just drywall. There's just concealed, you know, spaces so um i imagine that's a uh, that's a
2: wild ride yeah it was it was it was different <laughs> it was it was different it was different than anything i've ever experienced
0: so do you go to your bag of tricks because in every job experts in their field have bag of yeah. tricks mm-hmm. do you go to your bag of tricks and go this guy's not like anybody i've ever talked to I got to try something different or I got to try something that I know has worked in the past. How do, how do we do it? Do we start getting experimental or do we go with what we know?
2: And, and that's a good question. What, what he, what I did with him is what you don't do very often. I was brutally honest with him okay, because he could, he could see through all that foolishness and, and he he saw through a lot of the foolishness, a lot of the tricks that um he's that that i was trying to you know trying to give him and and i knew the the biggest thing with this guy is the active listening skills really yeah if i knew if i used the active listening skills and i listened listen because he thought i mean any not necessarily him but anybody anybody thought because he had just gotten a shootout with baines two minutes before i got there and baines and three other guys, right? So what is he thinking I'm going to do? He's thinking I want to kill him. I want to shoot it out with him, but I listened. You know what I'm saying? That's what you do. You listen, you validate, you validate what he's saying. And you're like, okay, yeah, I got it. Okay. And, and, and just for people who don't know, just the active listening skills is just an acronym is more pies. That's the acronym for Active listening skills, and it's M for uh, minimal encouragers. And minimal encouragers is basically saying, Uh huh, okay. I hear you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a minimal encourager. O is an open ended question. You ask a question. Um, R is um, reflecting. You reflect somebody. And the best way to reflect something to somebody, just say the last three words they said to you. And okay. Put a, and put a question mark on it. Like if you say, You know, you're talking to a suspect and he says, Somebody stole my car. Somebody stole your car. And That's just reflecting. He thinks you're listening and he's gonna start talking after that. Okay, and so it's just all the, the um, Active listening skills. That was really what I did to him most of the time um, And I use some of the social theory stuff um, and uh, Then the social theory the last one is liking and how you make people like you you um, Tell something personal about yourself. Okay, I mean, you don't tell them, you know. My wife is leaving me. I'm, I'm getting my house foreclosed on. But you would say if you talk <laughs> to somebody, you know, just like let's just just imagine you're on a flight and you sit next to a guy. And he's got a Baylor shirt on.
1: Yeah.
2: And you ask him. You said, "Hey, did you go to Baylor?" Yeah, I went to Baylor. What year? Oh, I came out in '95. Really? I came out in '94. Yeah, okay. Did you know? You know? And you exactly. Yeah. You start having that conversation with somebody. Yeah.
1: Uh, you share likeness. Yeah. You you get them to believe you, you're on the same side. There mm-hmm. you go.
2: Yeah, and that's and that's basically what I did to him. So you know, and just try to try to end. How did
1: that? How did that work for you? Was it obviously the end result is what it is? But did it de-escalate what you thought could have been a worse situation than continued shooting?
2: No. Yeah. Without a doubt, he never shot anymore after that. Really no. Well he, okay. he did after the device went off, but he was just flinching, but he never well, yeah. Yeah, he never shot anymore after that.
1: So how do you feel about the device and how it all went down?
0: Well let, let's save that for just a minute because okay. I, I want to go through a little more before we get to the resolution of this. At any point do you think I got this? I can get this guy to walk out of here. No,
2: not not not, not at not. one point you didn't think this not I can just get this the end, uh, No, not five seconds. Civilly, none, no. Uh-uh. And so, I
0: guess the question that that begs behind that is, why continue going forward? Are you? Are you? Uh, are you? thinking that you could possibly win this, uh, what makes you go forward? The reason that I keep asking these simple questions, you know, why do you go forward? Because I don't think the general public, when you talk about education, the general public understands that. There, You'll get one of two answers from the general public or the Monday morning quarterbacks. You'll get, why waste the time talking to him? If you know you're never going to win, why right. waste the time talking to him? And the other people that you'll get is when you waste the time talking to him, if you think it's good enough to talk for five minutes, it's uh-huh. good enough to talk for the next 50 hours. And yeah. you never get a true
2: middle in there. So w- what are you doing? Two, two things. Two, two things you're doing. You know, uh, for the general public, you know, if you think about the Dallas Cowboy game against um, Atlanta Falcons, right? Cowboys, okay. it was it was a minute left or whatever was left and we we were going to do an onside kick you never
1: a 99 never.
2: a 99% yeah probability
1: they win yeah you, the,
2: you, you never get the onside kick right or they had the 1% and they got it they got the onside kick and you know because you may get it every now and then you may get that onside kick every now and then and the biggest thing is the biggest thing is stalling for time that's the biggest thing because we got to figure out what we're going to do with this guy.
0: And so uh, I say that in, in saying this next thing. So as you're talking to him and I ask you, is there at any point, do you think I can win this? I can end this. I can have him walk out. He says some things to this, why I want to talk about it. That makes almost his, his whole purpose more resolute. Like he's not coming off it. And, and we've talked about that before that, that he was resolute. But when you hear this stuff, it's kind of haunting. Would you agree about what he's talking about? Because he knows or he thinks he knows what's going to happen to him when all this is over. Yeah. Yeah. So let's listen to a little bit of that, all positive points, and then okay. uh, you can talk about what he's talking about. Don't mind me asking, are you Christian?
2: You subscribe to any religion? Say it again. I didn't hear you. I got you. Yeah, I subscribe to Christian, man.
0: Let's stop right there for a minute, okay? Uh huh. He says. I don't I don't prescribe to Christian. I'm awake. You tell him, well, I'm Christian. He says, sorry to hear that. Yeah. Once again, we're to a situation where no win. There's no win out of this argument. He's not into it. So how do you go into this argument?
2: Well, back to the social theory, what I was talking about with um, liking, right? I want how you facilitate someone to like you. I exchanged something personal about myself and I didn't want to say that. I didn't want to say I was a Christian. That's why I came out kind of weird. i I've subscribed to Christian. I, you know, that's why I came out. The sentence structure was great right. because he caught me off guard and, but I knew that I had to tell him something personal about myself. And I don't know if you remember, you remember when, um, uh, the post nightclub shooting in Orlando, 50 people got killed in that club. Mm-hmm. The um, the club, the guy went in there. They got that guy on the phone. And uh, the most experienced negotiator got that guy on the phone. And that's how I knew it was a terrorist act because he said he pledges uh, allegiance to Abu somebody, right? I was listening to him. He almost sounded like a special needs child when he was talking. He was, he, he, he seriously, he, he sounded like a special needs person. And, and he asked the negotiator one question. He said, he asked the negotiator, their most experienced guy. Where did you go to where did you go to the academy? And that negotiator did what we all taught to do. He said, Well, I don't want to talk about me. I want to focus keep this focused on you. That guy hung up the phone, went in that bathroom and started killing people. So oh, it, really. It, yeah, it's important to let so give person, some of yourself. Yeah, it's it's important to to let that person in a little bit. Let him in. And so that's that's kind of what I did when he was talking about, you know, what about what about you? They caught me. Okay. Up. All
0: right. So let's let's go on with this negotiation okay. part. Yeah. I yeah. I guess it's, it's a just lens
2: a lens, lens, lens you look through. You know what I mean? Have any kids? You have any kids? No? You believe in the afterlife? Oh yeah. Which is just not religious. Okay? Uh-huh. And her
1: herself, and I remember
2: long later, no less than a year later, I was in a pool with my and I saw my the You can tell I, didn't see it. I see all the I saw her. I saw her dead essence, her spirit, her energy, whatever
1: the fuck you want to call it. I believe it's gonna have something. I don't believe I know that's the half-life real. That is powerfully misinterpreted in my opinion, but
0: and so wow. he tells you I know what's gonna happen. You're gonna kill me. I'm going to the afterlife. He okay. even doubled down on it and told you he might have kids in the next life. Yeah. He doesn't have them now. To me, when I look at this situation, it, it is a no win. Absolutely. No win with him. Um, and for
1: but- a Christian guy, in your opinion, you no, know, a Christian guy that, that knows faith and to hear this, you have to be in my opinion and then what i would be was so um it's such an abstract um radical thought it's hard to respond to what he's saying there without making him feel crazy
2: yeah um but uh you know it's, it's about that validation you got to validate it um you don't have to agree with it but you can validate it' Okay. Uh, because what what everybody feels is valid even if I if if he said um he was he he, he you know the guy who put the nikes on and the spaceship was gonna they drink the poison and the spaceship was going to come get him or David Koresh. um I That's true. You know, one of the one the one of the FBI schools I went to, not the one in Quantico, but one in Dallas, Bob Sage is the is the guy who who negotiated with David Koresh for 51 days. And he taught part of the school. And he was he was taught he talked about that. He talked about how David Koresh knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Yeah. But, but it was twisted. And Bob Sage had to just deal with that. You know, he couldn't he couldn't argue with David Koresh about what he believed you know so same way with him uh
0: as we're listening to that in in that audio clip you can hear a lot of people talking behind you mm-hmm. you can you can hear a lot of voices in the background i want to talk about a couple of different things on that one you hear the voices in the background is it throwing you off your game at all because not people all. are talking okay not uh, and number 2 Um, There were some things that didn't necessarily throw you off your game But things that happened to you while you're trying to concentrate with this guy and I want to talk about those of how you stay Focused on what you're doing Uh, One of the things that happened to you was someone was showing you on a phone Mm -hmm. uh, The the body count that was going up the injury count that was going up while you're trying to talk to this guy Yeah, a second thing that happened was uh, someone kind of locked and loaded a rifle uh, and he heard it. He knew. He said, uh, I think he said, Oh, you brought the big ones out for this one or something like that mm-hmm. to you. Um, How do we deal with all those situations? How do you quiet that into your own mind and keep moving forward?
2: Yeah, as far as the, the talking, I, I really didn't hear it because I was so focused on him. Um, But uh, Ryan Scott was the one that was putting the phone in front of me. And uh, like I would read it while I was talking, it would say, um, you know, five officers shot, one dead. Okay. You know, he bring, he'd bring it back a short time later, two officers dead, six officers shot or whatever, bring it back. And I, I swear to you, I, I promise you when he brought it back the last time, um, it said like five officers dead, 12 shot or whatever, whatever it said, I mm-hmm. almost slapped the phone out of his hand. I raised my hand to slap it. Cause you
1: were getting emotional.
2: I, yeah. I was It was just in, instinctively. I, right. did, I did that to slap the phone, but I just, because you
1: knew emotion
2: was yeah. going to help you in this situation. Yeah. Because I wanted to show him some empathy and I couldn't. Right. Because I knew he just killed somebody. I knew.
0: And you switched your, <clears throat> it talks about it in the book. You switch your mind thought a little bit and you think I want to kill this guy.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was tough. You know, you, you have to show that empathy for people and, and, and especially if you want to connect and and it's something called the behavioral change stairway and the behavioral change stairway is if you, you show you, you, at the beginning of the stairs is active listening at the beginning of the stairs. You use active listening. You develop a rapport. You go up the next stair, you develop a rapport with somebody. Once you develop a rapport with them, you show them some empathy. You go up to the next. You show them some empathy. Once you show that person some empathy, you have some influence over that person. And the last thing is, once you have influence over them, you can create that behavioral change. And the behavioral change is put the gun down, don't jump, uh, drop the knife, uh, and and the behavioral change that I wanted was don't shoot at us anymore. <laughs> that's the, right. That's the behavioral and, change. And you were getting those. Yeah, I was getting gap. that. Without yeah. a doubt. Without a doubt. He, didn't, he never shot again. Never so shot. is that but a win you know in your great? book? Oh that's, oh, that's a home run.
1: Yeah.
2: That is but, a home run bottom. But of you the know
1: box. what? What's a home run in that book, too, though, is that's a microcosm of our society today. It's like empathy and compassion mm-hmm. differences. Um, we can all take that for the textbook way it should be mm-hmm. and apply it to our lives now, mm-hmm. not just as a negotiator, but in our own personal life because we get lost. We get, we get um, so funnel vision on on whether you're on a conservative Democrat, radical left into all of that, all of it, we get so blinded by things we shouldn't. Um, I think that's a full circle situation to me, mm-hmm. but how you applied it in this situation was, um, was epic. Um, but that's how we can apply it to our everyday lives. Yeah. Just to tie it in.
0: Yeah. So how long do you think you're talking to this guy? What's your estimated time? Do,
2: are, are you saying that what I know right now or what I thought?
0: <laughs> um, both. Let, let's go with what you thought. And then what, you know, now
2: I thought i talked to him probably 45 minutes. It was like five hours. Yeah. It was about four hours.
0: <laughs> okay. That's crazy.
2: That's just how distorted uh, my view of reality was. That's just how just distorted it was.
0: And the reason I bring it up, how long that you talked to him was we should describe what you were behind a ballistic blanket. In a chair. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't a steel wall. There wasn't a brick wall. People need to understand that you guys don't do this for fun. You don't do it for kicks. You guys are out there with a ballistic blanket between you and him talking him down. When everyone in the whole situation knows it's never going to end well.
2: Yeah. And and it was was so bad that... I remember I talked to Melvin, uh, Melvin Williams. He had just got over to SWAT at the time. And I told him, and Wante was the, Jerry Wante was the guy who switched out his magazine and got a rise out of him. And and Jerry Wante was about eight feet from us across the hall in the doorway, in the uh, doorway of the stairwell holding cover. And I said, to, I, I said to Melvin, I said, hey, if he charge us, if he comes out at us, He's going to probably get one of us, but I said we have to give the a priority of fire to somebody. I said we, I said Wante, we're going to give it to Wante. So, and the priority of fire is if he runs between us, we would be shooting at each other. So, what we're going to have to do, Melvin, we're going to have to either push left or push right because Wante is going to be shooting at him because we have to get a priority of fire. And I said if he get past Wante. And get to this location. This is a, this is our no-go line, you know. And we're talking. We had to actually discuss that if he got through us, if he, I mean, if he charged us like he did that dart, right. on, if he charged us, we can't shoot at each other. We're gonna have to let right. those guys on that side of the hallway shoot. Take care of us. it. Yeah, yeah, they're gonna be shooting toward us, and we're probably gonna get shot by one of them.
1: Yeah, friendly fire.
2: Yeah. So yeah, that's how. That's how it was when we were sitting there, and we we're just like, okay, if he comes through, those guys over there are going to be shooting at us.
1: That's a very, um, that's a very difficult situation to be
2: in. Yeah. Able- to, to,
1: you know your 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 boys that are taking care of you, <laughs> might be the guys that take down you. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's
1: that's tough. That's some psychological shit right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. While you're doing what you're doing, no doubt.
0: So as you move through the negotiation, we, we we move through and we get towards the end that, that Jeff uh, was talking about a little earlier. The decision comes down, we're going to move a robot in. This is unprecedented in pretty much anywhere in the world yes. um, to end a negotiation like this. Now, we talked about before where you're so close, but you lose with the headquarters shooter. This one you know this one's not going to end well. Does it feel the same? That's the first part of the question. Does it feel the same or do you know this is what has to be done? This is just the end game of everything.
2: Yeah. I knew it has to be done and I wanted it done. Now I had to be done now because, okay. because you're in such peril in that hallway because he's threatening to come out of that. Right. You know what I mean? It It's just, just being, it's almost like, um, you know, just your your worst um, just think about something that you're very afraid of you're very afraid of and it, you're been af- and 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 that's heightened state of, of fear for four hours okay you just you know you just just imagine if you're in a, a cage with a lion or a, or a tiger or something mm-hmm. and that tiger is sitting there growling at you and you and you think he's gonna pounce on you at any moment, you're in that cage for four hours.
0: Hmm. Right. That, that so was- you and you know it's time to end it. So they make the decision to move the the robot in there. Uh-huh. Uh, the robot takes him out. It it's over. First, well, I think we should point out first, the explosive goes off. You hear more rounds coming off. The first thing in your head is we didn't kill him.
2: Yeah. Let me let me let me talk about the. Set that up real quick about the about the robot. Um, Are what, you
0: talking about when you moved to the stairwell?
2: Yeah. What What happened was um, we had to get off the floor because we didn't know what it was going to do.
0: Um,
2: right. And how I set the robot up is uh, when I was in Quantico, uh, one of the uh, uh, FBI negotiators. Uh, I think it was. I think it was um, his name was Vince Alfonso, and Vince was one of the guys that negotiated. The uh, Captain Phillips movie, when Tom uh, Tom Hanks plays, he was one okay. of the that negotiated with the Somalis or whatever. But anyway, he taught part of the school. But anyway, he talked about when the, the guys, the Bundy guys, that took over the Federal Reserve in Oregon, they took over the Federal Reserve for a couple of weeks, and they were just it, the Bundy guys was was some of them were, were in Nevada. It was over the land, and that that it was. I all remember that. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. the uh, the, he was, Vince was one of the guys that was negotiating with those guys in Oregon. And um, he told a story about how they were going to assault those guys. And he would say they would drive the APC up over personnel carrier up and get on the phone with the guy and say, hey, we're going to drop you off some food. They drive the APC up and pull it back, drive it up, drop off medicine or whatever, pull it back. And he knew they were going to assault him off of that APC. That's why he was having. He knew HRT was going to assault him. That's why he was having him pull it up, drive it back, pull it up, drive it back. So I did that with the robot. I told um, uh, Micah, "Hey, uh, the robot is on the Fritz or whatever, and we move it back. We kept moving the robots, and I knew we were going to switch them. Me and I didn't want him to shoot the robot. So that's why I, I, I told him we're going to give up. I'm going to give you a phone so we can talk on the phone." And so I was moving the robots. So I knew we were going to switch the robots when I when I when I when I left and I, I ac- actually asked him an open question so he was talking. I just picked up the shield, went across the hallway, and that's when the robot came around. So and and, and well, the robot robot almost didn't go off it, it because it was it was it just wouldn't go off because it was too far away from those guys and they were counting down and wouldn't go off. It was just it was just rough.
0: So, but I think it's interesting, and I I, I want to talk about you moving to the stairwell because as you're talking to him, uh, you're telling him, "Hey, the robots are going to be in and out of the hall." Well, you're you're desensitizing him to this everything that's going on. When everything comes down to the end, I thought it was crazy in the book where uh, you're essentially leaving the area to let the robot do what it's got to do, and he's calling out to you, "Hey." Hey, di- the same thing you're saying to him. Did I lose you? What what's yeah. going on? I can't hear you. And he kept saying your name, Larry, Larry. Hey, where are you at, man? And then what mm. goes through your brain? It's it's got to be a, a, a seventeen different emotions at once.
2: Yeah, I was just <clears throat> I was just thinking he's going to get away. He's going to run out. We're going to lose. Oh, this really? Guy. Yeah, we're going to lose this guy because he kept asking me, "Hey, where'd you go, Larry? Where'd you oh, go?" Oh, So he
1: thought he was scarce. And- on the run and gonna be
2: Yeah, I thought he was, I thought he was gonna run out. I thought he was gonna leave. Hmm. I was like, We can't lose this guy. We this this has to end now. This has to end now. And I was just I was I was done, man. It was four hours. I had been talking constantly for four hours in a state of panic, basically. <laughs> so I said it's gotta end now. So that was my biggest emotion.
0: Robot goes off, uh eliminates the threat. Um, they move forward for a kill check and all that kind of stuff. Do you go on that kill check?
2: No. Uh, what happened was uh, the guys opposite of us on the other side of the hallway. It blew their wall out. It blew their wall out, and so when Matt Matt Smith and those guys went back up after the device went off, they could see him because their wall was gone. Now, you know, because it was only just a wall between them and him. Right. They could see him doing the agno breathing and basically the agno breathing is you know you're breathing just you know your body's dying but it doesn't know it's dying you just do the agno right breathing. and that's what it, that's what it was that's what he was doing
1: so what was your response instantly were you relieved were oh you my, oh
2: my god yeah i was i was like thank god i'm just i'm ready for this to end i was ready for it to end i was i was i was done I was done had you
0: ever felt like that before on a negotiation or was that the first time you felt like man i'm glad this is done yeah. i mean of course you always at the end of something you're glad that it's over but was this but the first so time serious, in your career yeah. where you were like god oh, man i'm i'm glad i'm not doing this anymore
2: yeah um i was i was so happy that it was over because you know usually when we're doing the negotiations we're sitting on the phone i'm i'm, I'm safe i'm i'm in yeah. i'm in a car i'm on a command post or whatever the case may be and you're not in peril.
1: But you were in harm's way. Yeah. You were in shooting distance. You yeah. were you were there the whole time.
2: And you know and at, at, at one time I before the ballistic blanket got there while I was talking to him I'm thinking about we're we the reason why Swante switched his magazine out because we were just going to shoot at the sound of his voice. I was going to ask okay. him a question, and once he started talking all five of us was just going to start, I mean, dump everybody, dump a mag into that wall where he is. <clears throat> so while I'm talking, I'm thinking, man, he's probably doing that to me. I mean, oh. yeah, I'm the only one talking. Nobody's talking. So he's good point. he can hear where I am. Yeah. So I started walking up and down that hall just a little bit. I mean, up, up and down that wall. Just so you know, if he starts shooting, hopefully it'll shoot behind me or in front of me or whatever. So,
1: so you're a moving target,
2: yeah. It was, it was rough. Damn. So, the thing we asked
0: Matt was when it's all over, you go downstairs, you uh take all your gear off, um, everything's over. Of course, people go back, they had to give their rifles and pistols. I don't think you were involved in that part, right? I just had um, to go where to they give up their, up their right. So the, the big part that we talked to Matt about was, um, and I think this is extremely important in this story, driving home. Mm-hmm. What
2: goes through your head? Honestly, I don't even remember it. Um, I don't even remember driving home. I don't even remember coming home. My wife told me that when I got home, that morning, when I got home that morning, she hugged me. Um, I don't remember that. Um, it was just, is your
1: wife name Shane or
2: Sean? Shan S-H-A-N. My name okay. is she's got a black female name Lachandra, but we just call her okay. Shane for short.
0: Shan. See, there you go again with uh you, you can't do that. <laughs> All right. So you get home, you don't even remember. This is where the story takes a turn, and this is where I thought the most interesting part of your story, and I think Jeff, you did too. This yeah. is the most interesting part of your story. So at this point, how many years have you been a cop?
2: Um 21
0: 21 years. Okay, so 21 years SWAT how many years? 13. How many years is a negotiator? 13. Like a, a well, I mean where you're you are the, not the head of the negotiators, yeah. but where you're taking the the majority of the how many years do you think?
2: Um I would you know, probably probably like oh. 5 6 years um, you know, being the the lead negotiator for my squad.
1: Okay.
2: You know. So you have all these things. You have all these years on,
0: negotiator, undercover work, numerous, numerous entries, exactly. commendations, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Uh, this one changes you. Yeah. Um, you talk about in the book that you never had security on your house. Um, you had security, of course, where they yeah. build it and they put it in the house, but you never worried about it.
2: No. never. You started
0: worrying about it.
2: I had it redone actually. Okay. Really? Yeah, I had the cameras installed and I had a I had a whole I had it revamped after that. Why? Um because you got 21 I, years as a cop. You've seen everything, man. No, I had never seen that. Um okay. my my security was taken. Um you know, um when you when you see that and you, and you look in look the eye of a hurricane, man, it, it it changes you. Um you know, I think from a uh I you know, I wasn't I, I was never in the military. So I, I I never knew what PTSD was. And and I damn it, I know what it is now. Because
1: So do you think you went through some of that?
2: Oh, without a doubt. Um if I'm if I'm driving home and somebody's behind me, I wouldn't go home.
0: Really? Well, you actually didn't go home that day.
2: Yeah, I'll drive past my house, you know, because I don't know who's behind just me. Just to see what was up? Yeah. um, dream, Bad dreams and seeing a, a, a Micah come into my room in my dream and having my gun. I put my gun underneath my bed. It's, it's still there. It's there right now. But
0: but, but let's – I, I, I want to go pretty deep into this one. So this one's going to be a little bothersome Tough, to you later. Yeah. But I, I, I really want
1: to – Oh, where'd you go?
2: You there? I think he's going to come back.
1: I'm with you, Larry. This. Ha-
0: okay, so it says we're live again, just like last week when these interviews go long. Sometimes this happens. So this will be part two of part two. But that's a good
1: part. So I hate to break it up
0: at that part that we're at, but Larry, let's get into it. So you say you've never had PTSD. You've never had your alarm system on. You've never worried about it. You've never not driven home exactly at that time. All those things, you've done them now. Mm -hmm. What makes the difference? Because here's the thing. You know that that threat is gone. Do you think that threat's coming back? Do you think that threat may take another form? What made it different? Because you've stared in the eye of the hurricane hundreds of times,
2: but but not to that extent. Uh, like I said, usually I'm um, I'm on a phone. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm I'm, I'm safe, um, and just and it, and almost like your innocence was taken. In, in a sense, because um, you know, for for a guy to do that, based on the fact that something that happens in another state, it it, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything that Dallas PD done, right? It wasn't anything that we did. So you know, the you know these guys, um, you know, let's just say it was ten guys, okay, a, a coordinated effort that say, Hey, we're going to go and do this, 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 and this, you know? So it was just, it, it, it was the innocence of it was gone. Like, man, I can't believe that somebody would actually do this, you know? So you say you,
0: you have these dreams of X, uh, coming in your room. So you place the gun in your bed and, and all that kind of stuff underneath your mattress. Yeah. Um, how do we make that go away, or has it even gone away?
2: Yeah, well, it went away. Uh, you know, it went away pretty quickly. Uh, maybe when I say quickly, I mean, you know, a couple months. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's a
1: long time. Absolutely. Yeah, not yeah. really quickly. To no, be yeah. no, no, that's bad. fucked up. Like, you know, you're with your wife. You're with you. Yeah, you know, that's that's a that's some tough shit. No yeah. doubt.
2: Yeah it 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 was it was a while. I mean, you know. It, it went away. I'm, yeah. You know. um,
0: so
1: good for you. I'm glad it
0: is. How does it? And we asked Matt this same thing. How does it affect your family? First off,
2: I remember the the day after this happened, and I'm um I'm on a treadmill. I'm running on the treadmill because I need to work out. I'm like, man, I got, I just got, I need to work out. I so, burn it off. Yeah. So I'm on a treadmill, and I got my beats, my uh, beats by Dre on. So I'm jamming. Probably it's a little humble brag that he has beads, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> probably uh Mary J. Blige or something Yeah, like that. probably. probably, <laughs> probably. <laughs> and, You're and, a black uh, female now. Yeah, yeah. And my, my wife is playing like the tickle monster with my son or whatever. You know, she's tickling him and he's screaming, like, you know, and to me, and it's w- kind of strange, but to me, he's he's screaming for help.
1: Right. Okay.
2: You know what I mean? There's an
1: association yeah. with that.
2: Yeah, and I'm running. And he's screaming. And I can see them. Yeah. I can see them running and playing the tickle monster and all that. But it scared the hell out of me. I bet. I mean, it, it was weird because I see them. I see them playing. I see them. Ha- but just the screaming, it scared mm-hmm. me because though when I went downtown, the, the people were screaming. And it, it was just a correlation between it. it just, and I jumped off the treadmill. I jumped off while I was going. And I yelled at my wife. I said, stop chasing him. And they both looked at me like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? You know? And I, I explained it to her later, but she didn't understand. But, you know,
1: that's that's um, a very relatable common thing. And and honestly, I'm surprised you weren't stricken by some other stuff because um, that's one of the worst shootings, if not the worst shootings on U.S. soil, much less in Dallas, but in America – and you were a huge part of that. And, and actually, you were a hero, and, and and got the bad guys down. But you still have worries and PTSD because how fucked up it was. If you don't mind me saying that, mm-hmm. and um, I've got mad respect for that man. Like that's that's some real drama shit. Um and good looking out on you um, and your family and to be able to tell your family how you feel and and let them deal with it. That's a, that's a big part of the equation. It really is. And them understanding what you went through. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So Larry, you and I had talked uh, about this and it mentions it in the book, but I think it's, it's very important to bring up now. Um, when you used to come home from work, you would have like one drink, maybe yeah. like a beer or something to relax or kick back or whatever. After this incident, you saw that your alcohol intake went up. Yes. Uh, and, and not just went up, went up drastically. Would you mm-hmm. agree with that statement? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this is once again where I want to drive the point home. And, and we talked about it with Matt. A lot of the people look at uh, police officers as robots that they go out and they do this job and they go home and, and watch TV and it's all over. It's not, you carry this stuff with you for the rest of your life.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, you have mentioned specific incidences where you don't drive home. You change the security in your house. You have bad dreams. Not only did you have bad dreams, which to me almost brings it full circle when you were younger and you had the dreams of chasing someone and they mm-hmm. shot you. And when this ended, you had the dream of X coming in your room and mm-hmm. killing you there. People think yeah. that, that that doesn't carry, but you carry that for the rest of your life. Do you agree? You'll probably carry that for the rest of your life.
2: Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I, Is I mean, there a I'd, day
0: that goes by that you don't think about it?
2: No, not, not really. I, if I see a guy that looks like him, I think about it. Really? Yeah, I think about it. And and it's kind of weird that if I see a guy that looks like him, I watch that guy. I mean as if if, like a hawk. Yeah, as if that guy's gonna hurt me. You know, it's kinda weird. Right. Yeah. And that guy's like,
1: I'm just ordering a burrito,
2: man.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just ordering a burrito, like what the fuck? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I don't know how you came up with a burrito on the fly, but that's well, that nice. like Chipotle. Yeah,
1: I'm at Chipotle and I'm a burrito, but it's
0: going to me up. So the reason I bring that up is because it went for a while, but you had to have, one, the support of your family that kind of helped reel you back in.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Um, but explain to us the difference, why you started drinking more. Of course, we know about the dreams and all that uh-huh. kind of stuff, but there had to be something physically in you where you you felt like you needed to relax. So, can you talk to that at all?
2: Yeah, I I really didn't drink that much. I I never you know drink over you know two three beers. You know, I just I never did it, and I and I really I still don't. But I just the the drinking was more often. You know, okay. may, You know, I may have a beer to go to, and i needed like a beer to go to sleep almost like an ambient you know okay right. alcohol, alcohol makes me sleepy so if i drink a beer and if i sit down i'm going to go to sleep so i would it was it would be tough to go to sleep so i would have to have a beer to go to i say have to it was it was more habitual um it, was, it had a habit you know i was like you know i drink a beer well, like
0: But but I think that there's some mental stuff that goes into that. We we had Will Chesney on who was a dog handler in seal team six. Mm -hmm. And he talks about not only him, but Rob O'Neill in his book talks about Ambien is like, they have to have it to go to sleep because they're at such a heightened level Mm -hmm. all the time. And I think that it finally, that's what the, I guess you would say the straw that broke the camel's back was this incident.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'll tell you this from my experience, I mean, not to take your, I mean, I have to have anybody to go to sleep sometimes. It's like a thing, like, you know, especially during this pandemic, it's Mm -hmm. been like a weird thing. So um, I don't want to turn to alcohol. I don't Mm want to turn anything bad. But at the same time, I I feel guilty for taking like an Ambien. Mm -hmm. So I can definitely relate to where you're coming from.
0: No doubt. And so what did you find? One, what did you find help bring you out of this? And two, what can other, whether they be police officers, whether they people that are just PTSD from the pandemic, Mm -hmm. what did you find helped really kind of uh, help you out in this situation?
2: I think more of, uh, honestly, that, that helped me out was, you know, you know, I'm a religious guy. You know, okay. power, power of prayer. You know, prayer and meditation, and and knowing that there is a brighter tomorrow. You okay, know? And, yeah. and and that's what. And you know, like I said, you know, I've had a lot of suicide uh, prevention training, and and so, you know, I would tell people suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Absolutely. You know, because the sun is going to come up tomorrow. So that once you have hope once you have hope and like, okay, it's going to get better. That's really what, you know, brought me out of it as far as, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bullheaded. Like, and I, and I thought about it, man, I'm, I'm drinking every, every day. I'm mm-hmm. drinking every day. And I would tell myself, no, I'm not drinking today or I'm not drinking for six months and I'll quit for six. You know what I mean? It's just, I'm, I just have that, you know, I'm driven like that. You know, I can, I would say, no, I ain't, I'm not doing this today, and I'm, you know, I just, that's really how, what brought me out of it, and, you know, it's more of a machismo thing, as far as, I really needed therapy, man, honestly, I, I need, I ne- I've i never taken it, i never taken therapy. So, you still it. have never taken therapy? No, no never Any have. reason why? Uh, it's just a machismo thing, you know, I'm a man, that type of thing, even though I know I need it. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I You know, I just don't, I just haven't. Do you think you ever will? Yeah, I would love to do it. But it's just, you know.
0: Is it you know, and Larry, I know you pretty well. Um, is it the machismo thing? Is it or is it that there's a stigma attached to
2: it? Um, I that's that's possible. That's a little you know, but I'm I'm thinking I'm a man, I can handle it. I can handle my own business. Well, and, but, you know but that's know what, what I, mean? I
0: mean by the yeah. stigma yeah. is yeah. Hey, you can't handle this on your own. You got to yeah. go to someone else to take care of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know, even yeah. even even, um, you know, I I actually want to go to you know therapy, uh, marriage counseling with my wife. I want to go. I really do. I just think it's good. It's healthy. You know, you know, it's right. almost like it's almost like you know, you go to the doctor for your your physical health, you go to somebody for your mental health. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you bring that up. Cause that's one of the last questions that I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of end this one on a, on an upswing with you mm-hmm. for all the guys out there that watch the show or for the, the wives that watch this show uh, or listen to the podcast. How can negotiation help their marriage?
2: I, I know exactly how, cause it helps. Okay. I, it, it helps mine. Um, just the I, and I have this video that in one of my classes that I teach is, it's just this woman. It's it's I don't know if you ever seen it. If I'm gonna send it to you, if you, if if you haven't seen it, it's okay. it, it says it's not about the nail. You see that video?
0: Before? Oh, where she has a nail in her nail head? On her, yeah, have yeah, a nail in yeah. her
2: forehead. It's not about the nail, right? And and that's what it's about. That you know, being um, there, listening, not trying to save the day, not trying to, you know. Say, I'm going to fix this. She said, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen. You know, Um, and that's just basically what it is. Have some, just listen. Have the active listening skills. Let her know you're listening. Um, Let her know you're there. Let her know you care. Um, And that's basically what it is. Because when I don't use it, my wife tells me, you're not listening to me. You're, you know, but I I have to use it like, you know, the active listening skills. (laughs) So it works well for you. Oh uh, yeah, it works. It works. <laughs> works. Works well.
0: Well, Larry, uh, you know, I want to, I want to kind of end this one. Um, it's amazing to hear your story. It's a, uh, you know, not only with this guy, but with the other people that you've negotiated with. And, and the book has two more people that you've negotiated with. um, Actually, it's got three more people that you've negotiated with. Uh, we talked about them a little tonight. There's an additional mm-hmm. one about a female that we didn't talk about that you yeah. negotiated with. It was a a jumper, mm-hmm. but it's a uh, it's a fantastic book. I think that it talks about you very well. I thought if I wouldn't have known you, you would have been like seven foot tall, and <laughs> you know, just uh, mm-hmm. the the way she describes it. Um, and and I think it's great. Uh, what you did that night is absolutely undeniably the mark of a hero. Thank you. I appreciate that. To to sit there and take everything that was coming, the ability for him to move on you so quickly to fire on you and to keep calm and to try and talk this person down when you knew that there was no solution to this, Mm -hmm. there was no way that this ended well. And it's an absolute, um, great story to tell and and i told you when i when i saw you after it that it you went up so many levels in my in my book after i saw it It, it, it's unbelievable and and people should tell you that on a daily basis people should tell police officers on a daily basis that don't know what they go through they might see little snippets on the tv they might see little snippets in the news but they don't see the personal effect that it has on these people right right and and, you know, we can't thank you enough for what you did that night.
2: I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Is there
0: anything that you want to promote? You want to talk about anything like that before we get out
2: of here? Not at all, but I appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. means a lot. So...
0: Guys, once again, this is part two. We wanted to bring in The Negotiator. I thought it went great, uh, especially being able to talk about what he was thinking during the negotiations. The book is Standoff. It's by Jamie Thompson. It's absolutely amazing. I'll put links to it in in uh, the show notes. So where you see the description of the show, you'll be able to link on it in Amazon and go buy it. If you guys are having any kind of trouble with depression, PTSD, there are places that you can go. I'll put some links to those in there. And when you see a police officer, tell them thanks for what they do. They don't hear it enough. They don't uh, maybe feel as appreciated as they need to be. So we really want you guys to go out there and thank them. They they are the last line of defense um, for when as you said, the hurricane, Matt said, when the dragon comes. So guys, that's going to be it for us. We lost Jeff. I don't know what happened. Uh, he, he probably had a computer update or whatever. So that's Jeff. That guy over there is Larry Gordon. He is a true hero. Like we said, a Dallas police officer who's put his life on the line for numerous years. I'm DJ. This is the dads at drink and we'll catch you on the next one. Friday, don't miss, we've got Class Action Park. It's the theme park that killed like six people. They kept it open. Make sure you're there, 9.30, uh, Facebook Live. So we'll catch you on that one. See you guys later.
2: Bye. Okay. Take it easy, Kelly.